Okay, welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Maggie Mullen. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I currently work at Kaiser Permanente in Richmond, California in the Bay Area. Um, I'm also the author of a DBT skills workbook for psychosis and I use they, them pronouns. So thank you for having me. I am really excited to talk about one of my favorite topics for discussion, which is CBT for psychosis. Uh, I personally have been using this treatment for years with lots of positive results for the clients I work with, and I really feel very passionately about it. So I'm excited to be able to speak to you all about it a little bit more. Um, I will also say before we begin, if you need to use the bathroom, if you need to do whatever, please go ahead and do that. Um, you'll be on mute the whole time, so don't worry about that. And we'll go ahead and get started. Okay, so our topic for today is going to be cognitive behavioral therapy for psychosis. I'm going to be referring to this as CBTP throughout the rest of this presentation uh, to keep it short. So we have two days together, and the first day, which is today, we're going to be talking about an overview of CBT for psychosis and the research that backs it up. We're going to be talking a little bit about what the treatment approach actually looks like, and then we're going to be covering the cognitive model, which is really the heart of any CBT treatment. Day two, we're going to switch to more practical interventions, where we're going to be talking about specific skills that you can start using with your clients now, either individually or in group settings, and then we're going to wrap things up. So I'm going to have two uh, times during this presentation about halfway through and at the very end of the presentation where you'll have the opportunity to ask questions. If you do have any burning or urgent questions, feel free to put them in the chat. Um, Jean Lundquist will be the person who's handling those um, and they can alert me in case anything is very pressing or something I'm saying isn't making sense. All right. So for those of you who um, are familiar with CBT in general, uh, you may know that CBT was created by somebody named uh, Dr. Aaron Beck in the 1950s. And he is sort of credited as the father of CBT. And he actually started using CBT for people with psychosis or delusional thoughts in 1952. But it wasn't until 1994, so over 40 years later that the first clinical trial of CBT for psychosis was conducted in the UK. So we have a very long gap in time before this actually started being used more generally with this population. And in general, CBTP is used actually much more commonly in the UK overall. We're going to talk more about that in a few minutes. Within the last 15 to 20 years, CBTP has gained a lot of traction in the US as the treatment became more manualized and more widely applied. So the underlying assumption in CBTP is that your relationship with your thoughts can be changed and you can foster decreased emotional distress. So that's the heart of what we're trying to get at when we're working with CBT. And we're working with clients to essentially minimize the impacts of their thoughts by questioning their beliefs about those thoughts. And lastly, our goal is to increase their sense of control over their symptoms by providing education and concrete tools. And we're going to get into a lot more specifics of what that will look like shortly. So CBTP, I'm glad to say, is an evidence-based treatment. And what that has looked like in the research um, is that there's been 50, excuse me, there's been 50 randomized control trials that have been done, four systematic reviews, and 13 meta-analyses. So for those of you who are not big, are super comfortable knowing about research, these are the types of studies we're looking for that really tell us that this treatment is going to be effective with people. And in particular, what we've seen is that CBTP is a really important adjunct medication treatment for clients who are willing to take psychiatric medication. That being said, 
not all clients are willing or able to take psychiatric medication. And we have found that some of the gains from CBTP alone for people who don't take medication are actually just as important and just as profound. So what we see in the research, and again, in personal experience working with clients, is that clients have decreased positive symptoms. So those could be things like uh, the distressing beliefs or delusions that they have, the auditory or vis visual hallucinations or hallucinations of any other type. We see a smaller improvement in negative symptoms. So those are things like motivation, affect, et cetera. But we do see some shift. And this is actually different than medication, which doesn't tend to touch the negative symptoms people will experience. And in my opinion, most importantly, we see overall improved functioning. So clients are essentially getting back to the activities that they love, right? So whether it's working or relationships or being in school, whatever that looks like in their life, they're able to engage in those in a way that they weren't previously. We also see that for people, and some of you who are working maybe with young adults, teens, for example, using CBTP prevents or delays the transition to a full psychotic episode when people would use with people who are identified at being at high risk. So for example, people who might be in a prodromal phase of psychosis, um, that might be one intervention strategy that we use and is used really commonly in these early intervention programs that are cropping up around the country and around the world. And here's uh, the biggest piece of all of this. So with medication, when we look at how medication treats psychosis in the research, we see that those gains that are happening, so those changes that are positive in somebody's life, only last while somebody is on medication for the most part, right? There are a few exceptions, but overall. What we see with CBTP instead, though, is that these gains are maintained over time. So that is really heartening, something to know. Okay, so let's talk a little about what the philosophy of CBTP actually looks like. So I think of CBTP as really a new way of considering psychosis. So let's look at why we treat psychosis so differently than other mental health issues to start. So one of the things that I notice both in research and also in clinical practice with other clinicians is that people will say things like, you know, I work with all these people, but not people with psychosis. Or you look in the literature and you'll see people who have all of these rule out for psychosis in the literature in any treatment that they're providing. And to me, I'm not entirely sure why. I understand some of the reasoning behind it. But when we look at other mental health diagnoses, we see very similar distorted beliefs that are sometimes even to the point of somebody having no insight into why this is happening. So let me name just a few for a second. So when we look at something like anorexia or severe eating disorder, people have distorted beliefs about their body image to the point that they are um, restricting food or over-exercising and inducing a health risk to themselves. Uh, because they believe that they're overweight or their body is not the way that they want it to be. So it becomes a very extreme belief to the point that people may be hospitalized or even die as a result. Similarly with OCD, people have extremely distorted beliefs about um, their ability to change the future. So for example, if I check the stove this many times, there'll never be uh, a fire in my house, right? So we, we sort of treat these mental health diagnoses as significantly different, even though the core of what's happening, these distorted beliefs, are this very similar in many ways. So when we look at what the key features are of CBTP, the focus is on collaboration with active participant, active participation, where the client really is the expert. 
we build a strong therapeutic relationship. I think this is a, also a really essential part of CBTP in general because um, well, of any treatment modality, but also CBTP, because people may be suspicious, for example, have reasons not to trust you, may have a history of trauma, you know, all kinds of things that interfere with their ability to trust. So we want to focus on that. We use structured and active engagement. We generalize skills through homework assignments. And the focus is really on functional recovery and not on symptom reduction. So we're going to talk a little bit more about this. This. But the idea is that we're reducing stress and we're trying to help them achieve recovery. That's the focus. And we draw on behavioral and cognitive techniques to do so. So this is, I think, in many ways, the crux of any CBT treatment, if you're familiar with that. So the way we look at psychosis and CBT is that people are experiencing psychosis as unshared experiences that occur along a spectrum. So let me give you an example. So I am sometimes on call for work. Um, so I am on call like overnight so that I can do 5150 assessments in the hospital. And one of the things that happens to me when I'm on call is that I'm really vigilant, right? And I often hear my phone ringing uh, or buzzing, uh, vibrating when it's, and I turn to look at my phone and it actually hasn't. So in that case, I'm actually experiencing an auditory hallucination. I'm hearing something that other people in the same room who are there wouldn't hear. Yeah, this is a common experience many of us have, right, for waiting on an important call. And so uh, my experience might fall on the far end of the spectrum of less distressing. It doesn't really interfere with my functioning. The other end of the spectrum is people maybe who are experiencing voices telling them to harm themselves every day, where those experiences could be very distressing and could cause significant impairment in their ability to work, to have relationships, uh, to do what they can in the world. So part of our job in introducing an example like that is normalizing. So rather than taking it from this perspective of some people have um, psychotic spectrum disorders and the rest of us don't, we're talking about the fact that actually many of us have these um, what we considered psychotic experiences, but they just don't interfere with our lives overall. So in CBTP, we intentionally use a less pathologizing framework than a lot of clinical talk we normally see. So one thing we talk about is rather than saying the term delusions, we talk about distressing beliefs. Rather than paranoia, we talk about suspicious thoughts. Instead of cognitive distortions, we talk about unhelpful thoughts. Oops. And so there's other pieces of language that we might use, again, that are meant to normalize this idea that we all experience some version of these. But with psychosis, they tend to get stuck for longer and have a bigger impact on somebody's life. So the stages of treatment, again, these are the same as any CBTP, or excuse me, any CBT treatment in general. So I'm not going to run through them in a lot of detail, but we start with engagement and befriending. So building that relationship, we're assessing somebody's experiences to understand what's happening and what their understanding of why they're happening is. We're applying it, the interventions and we're working on skill building. And then we're working lastly on relapse prevention. So what are the types of skills that you can bring into your day-to-day -day life to practice on your own where you get to become your own CBT therapist after we complete our treatment? Because CBTP is a time-limited treatment. So this is a little bit of my cheesy slide, but I also really believe it's true. Um, so the research tells us that the outcomes of treatment are influenced by whether the clinician believes that you can experience psychotic symptoms without distress. 
and get back to your meaningful activities. So your personal belief as a therapist, as a social worker, as a case manager, whatever your role is, you have to hold out hope yourself that recovery is possible for your clients. And we've seen that individually with clients one-on-one. -on -one. You probably have had that experience where people will kind of call a BS, for example, on something you're sharing when you're not really sharing it fully with, you know, ingenuinely. But also the research tells us that. And for me personally, one of the reasons I like CBTP most is because it allows me to, and it also encourages me to feel hopeful and encourages me to bring that same hope to the table for my clients. Again, a lot of us who have been trained as clinicians or social workers or whatever role we play have been taught that psychosis is not treatable, that um, there isn't any therapy that's effective for working with this population. And it's frankly not true. Um, and I, I also think it's um, pretty biased in many ways, to say the least. So this is a treatment that really gives us the ability to hold out that hope. And it's also critical that we do hold that hope for our clients. When we look at consumer-driven research, so essentially research that's about what our clients want from therapy, what we see is our clients want all the things any of us would want from treatment, right? We want to be listened to, we want to be validated and given hope. Uh, we want more information uh, to be more educated. We want to be able to make our own choices and collaborate in treatment decision-making. And lastly, we want social and functional improvements, even over symptom reduction. So we want to get back to the things that we like or love to do in our lives. And that is, I think, very much in line with the CBTP model overall, that we are working on recovery. And in many cases about the reality of, no, we're not going to be able to treat and get rid of all of your symptoms in all cases, right? That's just not realistic. And so how do we create a world where you can still do what you love and also experience psychotic symptoms potentially? And are there ways that you can befriend your symptoms or make them, you know, part of your life um, in a way that they're integrated in? Okay, and again, in studies of what clients specifically got out of CBT for psychosis, what they talked about liking most from the treatment was they felt their experience was normalized, they understand, understood psychosis in the context of difficult or traumatic experiences. We're going to come back to this, but trauma can play a huge role in psychosis. And then acceptance. So again, that piece of, I don't need to be symptom-free in order to live my life. All right, so let's talk about how do we engage our clients to start. So I'm really clear that if any of you are working with psychosis already, you're doing a lot of things already. So some of these are going to be repeats um, and feel free to add other options to this list that you found helpful personally. So in engagement, one of the biggest things in any um, work with psychosis is we want to bring in people's natural supports, right? So their loved ones, the people in their lives who are important to them and who help prop them up. That's one way that we can get history. We can engage the client better uh, and more fully. We can, um, you know, help those supports. We're going to talk about this tomorrow at the end of day two, but about we can educate them on the CBTP strategies so they can be using with their loved ones and family members as well. In an ideal world, we are conducting CBTP sessions in the length of a 50-minute hour. That being said, some people can't tolerate the full hour. So there are times where we're going to reduce the session to 20 or 30 minutes, depending on what the client is able to tolerate. We want to create a relaxing atmosphere. So, it, you know, some of us are doing work out in the field in people's homes. Other people are having clients who are brought into a clinical office. Whatever environment, you're trying to make it as um, relaxing overall as possible, and in particular, as 
low stimulus as possible. So don't have bright lights, uh, lots of noise, things that can be distracting that are difficult with psychosis. We want to really allow our clients to discuss their thoughts and feelings about treatment. So one of the things is often when you start to ask a client about their experience in the past with treatment, if they've had it at all, it tends to be pretty negative in general. Um, you'll be surprised the stories that, you know, I've heard and probably you all have heard of um, being incarcerated because of their symptoms, being hospitalized because of their symptoms, um, experiencing trauma or invalidation or discrimination because of their symptoms, right? There's all kinds of baggage based on the way we treat people with psychosis, both as a society and also as a mental health field that comes into the room. We also really, really, really want to consider what's culturally normative, right? So um, this is just a brief snippet on this, but one of the things about schizophrenia in particular is that for years in the U.S., we use that diagnosis uh, uh, to oppress Black men in particular. It was a way to send them to, the, to mental institutions, and that continues to show up today uh, in different formats, right? The way that people are incarcerated, sent to hospitals, uh, overdiagnosed or overpathologized. And so it's really important that we ask ourselves questions like, is this healthy cultural paranoia, for example, or is this a suspicious thought that isn't based in reality? We also want to teach that common language for symptoms. We want to avoid formal discussion of diagnosis unless it's helpful. And we also want to use an informal approach. So part of building that relationship might be about, um, you know, disclosing with what you're comfortable with, using personal examples, a way to kind of build that relationship with a client. You're creating mutually agreed upon goals. So again, that collaborative process. And then you're using curiosity to explore their experiences. Okay, so let's talk about the structure of a session. So again, this is assuming you can have somebody who tolerates a 50 minute hour. Um, again, adapt as needed. So the first thing you're doing when somebody comes in the room is you're setting agenda. And again, this is a collaborative agenda. You put on what you think is important and you encourage them to put on what they think is important and try to find a middle ground. Because homework is a really important part of the generalization of these skills you're going to be learning, clients are going to have homework assignments every week. And so you want to spend the first part of the session checking in about how that homework has gone, problem solving what got in the way, what could help them actually practice it if they didn't do their homework, didn't have the opportunity, getting creative in whatever way is possible. Then you're bringing in your own item. So typically that is something like a skill or a way to challenge uh, cognitions in that first session or that first bit of the session. And then you're allowing the client to have 15, min 15 minutes at least for themselves, right, to talk about whatever specific thing is coming up. In my experience, clients often want to use the skill we're talking about to apply it to something that's happening in their lives. And often that's a really good time to talk about it. And then lastly, you're eliciting feedback. How did this go? What could be different? Um, were there any ways that I could be more supportive to you? Again, building on that relationship. And I'm gonna talk just for a second about um, the flow in general of the curriculum. And the, the specific slide that I have up here is what we use in our CBTP groups. So I wanna to speak to group for a second. I personally love groups. I'm a huge fan of them um, for a lot of reasons. One of which is that doing CBTP in a group setting is incredibly normalizing. So to have the ability for clients to share their experiences of, you know, hearing voices, for example, where somebody else can say, oh, I've had that experience before too, or that must be so frustrating, I've been there before, or things like that, really add to that ability to normalize the experience of psychosis. 
So I'm not going to read through all of this, but this is kind of a snapshot of the types of skills and topics that you'd be going over in individual sessions as well as in a group format. If you are working with, some, with clients in a group format for CBTP, it's very, very helpful to have their individual therapist or case manager also be reviewing that as well with them so they can talk about how to apply those skills to their specific situation. And we are in day two tomorrow, we're going to be spending more time in detail on some of these topics. Okay. So um, for those of you who are already falling asleep, um, we're going to do something to kind of mix it up right now. And what we're actually going to be doing is we're going to be watching a video of somebody putting CBTP in action. Uh, this person is Doug Turkington. He is a, um, a MD in um, the, in, uh, he's in Scotland, excuse me. And he is one of the inventors or um, sort of collaborators in the research field and in the practice field around CBTP. Many of you have probably read his books if you've looked at anything around psychosis. There, you know, he has plenty of them. Um, and then Jerry Pel uh, excuse me, Jeremy Pel Pelton, who is also part of that as well. And we're gonna, what I'm gonna have you do while you're watching to kind of help engage you is we're gonna be doing an assessment activity. So if you've ever done coding for research, this is kind of a similar idea, but a very kind of watered down version. But what you're gonna be looking for while you watch this video that we're gonna debrief a little afterward, are when do you see the therapist eliciting the patient's experience of symptoms? When do you notice the therapist expressing empathy, maintaining low emotional expression? connecting the content to the emotion? When do you see the therapist reviewing existing coping strategies, eliciting an understanding of the cause of symptoms? When do you see him normalizing the client's symptoms and providing context for understanding them? And when do you see him identifying vulnerabilities? So we're gonna come back to this in a few minutes uh, while we watch the activities. Tony, you've been given this diagnosis of schizophrenia by one of your doctors. I just wondered what it's like for you and, and what the main problems are. The main problem is these, well, they tell me that it's a problem to do with my schizophrenia, these voices. Mm. Uh, they, they, you know, they, they come and they, uh, they, I hear these people talking about me and, and uh, talking about how rubbish I am and, and uh, what a failure I am. And I, and I really just wish they'd leave me alone. Yes, it's extremely negative content to what's being said. So it's a clear voice outside of your head, is it? Yeah, yeah. They, it, it's two voices, and you know, they, they sometimes they talk talking to me, mm -hmm. um, and and sometimes they're talking about me. But it's it's always really negative. There's no <laughs> there's no helpful things there oh. at all. It sounds like these voices are associated with a feeling of sadness. Uh, Am I getting that right? Or is that another feeling? Oh, uh, well, uh, when I let them, they, they, they get me really down. Mm. They get me really, really down. But, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm fighting these, fighting them still, you know? What, what are you doing to fight? Well, I, I, there's, there's where, where I get into a real problem, because I, I shout back at them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, oh, my neighbours—they, uh, they, well, uh, you know, they don't understand, and they say they don't hear these voices. And sometimes I wonder if you know if my neighbours mm. are in on it as well. But mm. uh, you know, they, they they say that there's you know that they can't hear them. But I don't, I don't understand how they how they can't hear them because they're so loud. So loud. Yeah. What what 
do you make of these voices then? Do you think it's part of an illness? Or do you think the neighbours are doing it? Or, or what do you think? Well, you know, I, I think uh, I, there was somebody once that I, I uh, you know, really didn't get on with at, at school. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and I think I think it's I think it's him, and and I think he's kind of got these people to uh, you know to 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 be you know kind of harassing me. I, I think they're trying to drive me mad. Mm. I think is what what they're what they're trying to do. Mm. That's a very distressing experience. I can understand that. So, do you think other people can hear them if they're very loud? Well, you know you know what they they say they can't. Um, mm. But you know that makes me wonder if they know what they're, you mm. know, if, if they, maybe they're on it, you know, in on it. But um, everybody says that they can't, and you know, I, I, I don't know. I've, I've tried. My CPN said, mm. you know, why, why don't I put a recorder on, mm -hmm. you know, when when the voices are 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 there, um, and you know, I, not, it didn't pick them up. But I, I don't know. Maybe maybe it was faulty or something. It just. Uh, Nobody else can hear them, I guess, is, yeah. is the answer to your so question, or everybody says they can't. Even with the tape recorder, you still don't think... Well, you think other people maybe can see them, hear them. Well, sometimes I think people can hear them, mm. uh, and, and sometimes I think, you know, well, well maybe, maybe, the, maybe my CPN's right, maybe, maybe it's my imagination. So is it just you that hears voices, or do other people in society hear voices, Tony? Well, there's there's somebody else at the day centre, and and you know he hears voices that uh, other people can't hear, mm -hmm. and you know we we've we've talked together, and uh, and I can't hear the voices that he's hearing. Mm -hmm. uh, That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if there's certain types of stress which can make anybody hear a voice. Have you ever heard of that kind of a thing? No. Because no. quite often soldiers coming back from the war will be hearing the sounds of battle, gunfire and helicopters, etc. Mm -hmm. So it's actually they're not actually there, right. but they hear them as if they're real. Right. And it's linked to the stress of, of being in a war. Okay. Do you ever find that your own voices are worse if you're not getting asleep, if you're sleeping really badly? Definitely, definitely. What, mm. what, what I find is that uh, sometimes I, I, you know, when I get really worried about, about these, what they're doing to me, but, and, and I think, well, maybe I'm, I'll, I'll stay up, mm. and, and, you know, just in case they're, they're going to, you know, kind of pull some tricks or something mm. in, in the night. Um, and, and times when I do that, you know, actually the, I do hear them more, mm. you know, the, the next day. So maybe lack of sleep has something to do with voice hearing, right. and this is very commonly seen in society, that the longer that people stay awake, the more liable they are to hallucinate. What about drugs? Are there certain drugs that cause voices? What do you think? I, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess um, I've heard people talking about being a bit paranoid when they take cannabis, but yeah. I, I don't know whether, whether that would be... I mean, there's other types of drugs that make you see things. Uh -huh. Like, well, you know, it's taking LSD or anything really nasty like that. Yeah, I've heard of that. Can really make you hallucinate things that aren't uh -huh. actually there. Yeah. So there's lots of possible causes. 
it seems like the human brain can very easily hallucinate under certain conditions. And there are certain things that can keep that hallucination going. So it seems like about 8% of society will have a period in their life of hearing the kind of voices that you're hearing, Tony. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority of them will get better again. Right. So 8%. 8%. So it's, it's a very common human experience. But at the far end of that 8%, there's a group of people with a diagnosis of schizophrenia because their voices are so distressing. They're hearing them day in, day out, and they're really affecting their life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, that is where that kind of label comes from. Yeah. Basically, everybody at some point has had some kind of hallucination whether it be hearing things, seeing things, feeling a touch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How, how do you know that? Well, it is said, Tony, that following grief, you know, when someone close to you dies, yeah. as you grieve over the loss, there's always a phase of hallucination. Mm-hmm. And during that phase, you will either see that person or you'll hear them speaking to you or you'll smell a perfume or an aftershave mm-hmm. or feel their touch. And after you've finished grieving, it doesn't happen anymore. Right. One of my friends is, is an artist, and uh, after his mother died, he heard her speaking to her for three months. Mm-hmm. He eventually got over her death, mm-hmm. and she stopped speaking to him. Right. So it's something that we all do. Mm-hmm. And how we react to it seems to be crucial. That's interesting. Because I, 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 I know that I, I've, been, I've been fighting these, this experience mm-hmm. for, for a long time now. How, what effect does that have? Well, it seems to be the case that there are some things we can do that will worsen and perpetuate voice hearing. Right. There are some things we can do which will take the edge off it and bring it under a bit of control. Now, to have it under a bit of control would be very different to the way you've dealt with your voices to date. Yeah. That's a little bit of CBTP in action. So we're going to turn next to something called the stress vulnerability model. And so, for example, when you're working with a client, one of the things that we want to talk about is how how somebody might have developed psychosis in the first place and also how we can predict the likelihood of them experiencing recurrent episodes. So we use something called the stress vulnerability model. It might be something that you all are familiar with. And the way I think about it, it's sort of bringing together the idea of the nature versus nurture debate that in general happens. So the idea here is that we're explaining to a client both why they might have had their first episode and also what our hypothesis is for subsequent episodes. And you're using this as a collaborative tool with the client to say this is one understanding. How do we integrate what your own understanding or your family's understanding is to be part of this? Because we wanna, again, have this be a collaborative experience overall. So 
So the way I look at it is sort of like a math equation. So I uh, use a whiteboard a lot in sessions. You can just use a piece of paper or whatever works best for you in your setting. And I'll look through and we'll say, okay, so let's look over to the left to figure out what are the genetic factors that might have been involved. So for example, family history, is there anyone in your family who's experienced anything similar to what you have? Um, were there any issues when you were in utero that you know about um, from your parents? So those are the things that we really have no control over. And the same goes for childhood stress. So these are things like trauma, stress, neglect, um, things that were happening in our households when we were young, things that might have added additional stressors overall to our life at a young age. So then we look at the two of those. So those are sort of the early childhood events or um, genetic factors that are involved. And then we might look to a client and say, okay, so knowing that these are things that you didn't have control over, these are things that happen in your life, let's look at the things that are actually protective for you. What are the strengths you have? What are the things in your environment that set you up to be more likely to have success? So we look at, for example, um, somebody's will, like, ability to engage in treatment. The fact that they're there in the room for you is a protective factor or the, you know, out in the community, wherever you are if they have a support system, for example, um, whether they're taking medication or not could be a protective factor. Uh, do they have hobbies? Do they have stable housing, right? Things that reduce the stress load on somebody's back in general. And those are things that somebody might actively engage in. So for example, using skills to manage their symptoms, but they can also be things that are sort of given to them kind of in a similar way that privileges, right? That they might have financial stability, for example. And then we look at the right side here. And again, this is where the math equation kind of piece comes in, where we say the risk factors that you have are take away, unfortunately, from the protective factors. So part of our role is to reduce your risk factors and increase your protective factors overall. So let's look at, for example, if we're looking at a first episode of psychosis for somebody, so kind of doing maybe a history with them, we might think about what was going on around, this, around the same time that you developed your symptoms. For example, were you using drugs or alcohol? Were you experiencing trauma or stressors like um, unstable housing or food insecurity? Were you experiencing discrimination or bullying? Um, what was happening during that time in your life that would have made it more likely that things kind of got tipped on the side of too much risk and might have kind of activated that underlying genetic vulnerability overall? And then how that whole equation comes together is that is what it makes it likely that we'll develop symptoms of psychosis. So I talk about this as just one way of understanding things with clients. Um, and part of how I would frame this as well is, okay, so now that you've had your first episode, because most of us are working with people who've had at least one episode, we think about how do we still use the same equation to actually benefit us now that we are, uh, we've had our first episode. So for example, we might say, how do we, again, tip that scale so we have more protective factors, things that are going in your life that we can help create for you both in your environment and then in terms of skills that you can be using that's going to make it less likely for you to have a recurrent episode. So let's look at an example with this. So we're going to be talking about Sammy, and we're going to use Sammy as our case example through today and tomorrow. So I'm going to introduce Sammy. So Sammy is a 35-year-old black bisexual cisgender man and he is diagnosed with schizophrenia. Sammy grew up in a multi-generational household where his grandfather used to have breakdowns, but the family never talked much about it. Sammy's family is very close and attended church services together growing up. At school, Sammy didn't have many friends and was bullied for acting like a girl in high school, acting like a girl. 
In high school, Sammy was hospitalized twice after he stopped sleeping because he believed his electronics were being tapped by the FBI and there was a chip installed in his brain. Sammy is now on a monthly injectable medication. He sees a social worker every few weeks, takes classes, and has a few close friends. He smokes marijuana to deal with stress, which sometimes increases his suspicious thoughts. Okay, so I want to think about how we might use this model of stress, the stress vulnerability model to introduce this idea to Sammy if we were working with him one-on-one. -on -one. Okay, so let's come back to what it actually looks like. So I'm going to have you all again use the chat function here to talk. Let's go through one by one. So what are, based on what we read in Sammy's example, what are some of the genetic factors that might be at play that we know about that could be contributing to why he may have developed? Okay, so family member with breakdowns. So possibly grandfather. Yeah, great. Okay, and I'm sorry, I know people asked earlier questions. I'll come back to those at the end. I'm not ignoring you. Okay, now how about childhood stress? What were the stressors that we noticed in Sammy's example that could have made things more difficult for him? Okay, so he was bullied. Yes, great. Anything else? Going to church? Yeah, that could be a strength. That could be a stressor. Totally depends on that person's relationship. Yeah, they didn't approve his sexuality, for example. Dressing like a girl. Uh-huh. So people bullying him. Okay. Um, and then what I think the other piece here, right, is he didn't also have friends at school. He maybe didn't have other people to rely on when he was being bullied, for example. And the family not talking about grandpa breakdowns, right? So I don't know what the breakdowns look like, but maybe those could have been a stressor as well in the family in terms of everyone who's living together in an intergenerational household. What did that look like for them? So now let's turn to protective factors. So what are the things that might be um, helping to support or be strengths for Sammy. Okay, so see the social worker regular, regularly, um, going to church, so potentially a protective factor. Thanks for everyone who's filling in the gaps on that question about what it means to be cisgender. We can talk about that more at the end if that's helpful. Um, taking medication, has a few close friends. Um, well, Adam, uh, he's a student as well, so he's taking classes, doing something that sounds like is important to him. And now let's look lastly at the risk factors. So what are the potential risk factors that we heard about that are happening now in the present day in his life? Yeah, using marijuana. So in general, again, this is where it gets complicated with psychosis and marijuana, but in general, we think of marijuana as potentially being something that would make somebody more likely to be symptomatic. And in particular, in Sammy's case, we noticed that it actually increases his suspicious, suspicious thoughts. So yeah, great examples, everyone. Okay, so with Sammy in lack of social support, thank you. So in Sammy's case, what we would look at again is how do we increase those protective factors in his life to make it less likely that he'll have another episode that may potentially end him up in the hospital. So we're gonna talk about that a little bit more in detail. But before we get there, we're going to talk just for a second about the CBT model and keep it Sammy in mind because we're going to come back to him very soon. Thanks, everyone, for your participation on that one. Okay. So this is very basic CBTP or excuse me, CBT stuff in general. So the way we think about the cognitive model is that our interpretation of a situation is what makes a difference. So we have a thought that pops into our brain. We have an emotional response to that. Um, and then we engage in some kind of behavior. 
And what ultimately makes a difference when an experience happens is the way we're thinking about it, because that's what influences this whole kind of vicious cycle of an emotion, behaviors, and thoughts. So I'm not going to go through that in too much detail unless people have specific questions, because we're going to come back to it with an example. Okay. So with distressing beliefs, like, for example, some of the ones that we're going to use for Sammy's to explore, one of the things that we think about with psychosis is that these actually may be attempts to explain unusual experiences. So people with psychosis make attempts, as all of us do, to explain unusual experiences. So, for example, if I'm talking to a fr about a friend um, and then I run into them at the grocery store just a few moments later, I might say to myself, oh, man, that was fate or like, what a cool co coincidence. For people with psychosis, they're actually more likely to jump to unusual conclusions quickly and that they might be overly confident about those ideas. So, for example, they might hear the television talking to them um, and or excuse me, they may hear the television and it seems like it's being broadcast to them. And so they say, oh, I think I must be a god, right? And they come to that conclusion quickly and they also believe it more firmly. The good news about this is that with distressing beliefs such as that, um, the good news is that people are actually more willing to change their hypotheses with more information. So that's part of how CBTP addresses those distressing beliefs. Okay. So let's talk about how we might assess distressing beliefs, and then we'll come again back to Sammy's example. So the kinds of questions that we're thinking about is, are um, sort of like getting an idea of why the client feels the way they do and how it's impacting them overall. We really want to understand what the client thinks in a non-judgmental fashion. And you always need to consider, again, what's culturally normative. That's a really important part of any work you're doing with somebody in mental health in general, but particularly with psychosis. And if you're not sure, you might want to consult a colleague, you might want to read a book about it, you might want to ask your client's loved one or ask your client just to get a better idea. So we're looking at the strengths. So how strongly is the belief held? Um, what's the context? How unrelated is it to the person's situational life circumstance? That's often where the cultural appropriateness question comes in. How much time does the person spend thinking about it? How understandable is the belief? Um, how much does the person relate and experience to themselves personally? How long has it, the belief been present and has it changed over time? And then lastly, reinforcement. What's maintaining that belief? What's keeping it stuck? Um, so there's a clinician, uh, Dr. Tully, who presented um, a few years ago on CBT for psychosis, and she used a really nice quote that I'm going to take from her, which is, if you want to put out a fire, you need to tackle the elements keeping the fire going, such as heat, fuel, and oxygen, rather than looking for the spark that started the fire. So in CBTP, what we're really looking at is what is the problem, why and how did it develop, and what actually keeps it going. So an example here would be if you have a client with childhood trauma um, and psychosis, so potentially PTSD or traumatic history, and the client hears voices that are related to the trauma. Um, so for example, hearing thoughts about um, how they should be degraded, they might hear the voice of their abuser, for example, et cetera. 
those voices are being maintained by some level of avoidance. Of avoidance. Um, so for example, social avoidance, which is the heart of PTSD, right? We avoid things that remind us of the trauma. And so part of our work in tackling that in CBTP is to address the avoidance. And we might address the avoidance in several ways. Uh, we might work on an emotion regulation strategies. And in particular, we're gonna work on exposure type strategies that we're gonna talk more in detail about tomorrow. So of people with schizophrenia, um, about 29 to 40% are diagnosed with PTSD. And let me say it like this, they are diagnosed with PTSD, which means this number is actually probably lower than we think it would be because A, people with schizophrenia or other psychotic disorders are usually not getting treatment in general. And also because people aren't always disclosing this and clinicians a lot of times are not assessing for trauma. And then with social anxiety, we see this number as about 30%. Again, potentially much lower than it might actually be. So these numbers are quite high in general. So the reason I bring this up is to say with social anxiety and PTSD, avoidance is the common factor of how these beliefs keep getting maintained, right? We avoid social situations, we avoid situations that might remind us of the trauma, and then we tend to have these beliefs get further stuck and stuck and stuck over time. So other maintenance processes that we'd be thinking about, so again, things that reinforce or keep these thoughts stuck would be safety behaviors and avoidance. So we just talked about those. Um, reduction of activity. So um, for example, clients who um, stop doing the normal activities that they would do, like getting out for taking a walk, being around people socially. When we reduce those activities, we actually tend to have less outside experiences that can help break up a belief because we are not getting other we're not, we don't have other new experiences. We're just kind of stuck at home by ourselves all the time. Um, then we might have uh, catastrophizing. So we work on challenging those thoughts or coping ahead with performance anxiety, again, exposure-based practices, and then short-term rewards. So for example, substances or self-harm, we get an immediate relief from both of those activities. So that's why people tend to keep using them or doing them. So part of what our job is, is to find other replacement behaviors that are going to reinforce in a similar way. Again, we're going to talk more about what these specific strategies will look like tomorrow. Okay, so let's come back to that ABC model and talk about how we can apply it in this case. All right, so those of you who are familiar with ABC, um, the ABC model from CBT, this is gonna look really familiar with you. It is really not any different than a normal CBT model. It just happens to have the experience of somebody who is psychotic. All right, so we're gonna use this particular example. So, um, so Sammy is um, on a trip to his local grocery store and he's having a cash conversation with the cashier as he checks out. And while they're talking, he hears a voice telling him not to trust the cashier because they're the devil. And let's examine how you might, as a provider, use the ABC model to explore this with the client. Okay, so the belief might that be that pops into Sammy's head is um, she may have bad intentions, she can't be trusted, or people can't be trusted. So I'm going to ask that client, like, what runs through your mind as soon as this happens? So, you know, Sammy might share with me, you know, here's a few things. And I might ask, what's the most bothersome? And he might say to me, she can't be trusted. So we're, we might use that as the example that we go through this activity with. So then my next question to Sammy is, now how true did this thought feel in that moment? 
And Sammy might say, you know, on a scale of zero to 100, 90%. It felt like almost certainly true. So it felt really impactful. So then the next question we might ask Sammy is, what are the consequences of this? So for example, what did you feel physically in your body? What were the emotions that were running through, your, through you in that moment? Um, and were there any changes in your behavior as a result? So in this example, Sammy might say, my anxiety was rising. I noticed my armpits were sweating. I felt fear. I felt suspicious of someone I like. And then I ended up avoiding social interaction. I stopped going to that grocery store because I didn't want to feel worried about her. And so then I just stopped going to other places because I thought the same thought might pop up. And again, what, part of what we're doing is we're sort of playing um, the role of a very non-judgmental, uh, curious question asker, right? So we're not trying to make assumptions about the client's experience. We're just trying to elicit from them like what less of that have been like um, in a very gentle kind of way. So then what I might say to a client is, so, okay, first of all, I'm going to validate their experience. Like, wow, that sounds really tough. So the same way Doug Turkington in that video was talking about, um, that must have been a very distressing experience was what he said. So whatever version of validation for you feels genuine, validate them. Because obviously this is a distressing experience. And you don't have to validate the actual thought they were having, but you can validate the consequences of that thought, that clearly it impacted them and it felt terrible in that moment. So then we're asking about um, what the evidence for and evidence against this thought is. So I might tell a client, let's play detective for a moment and let's just look at what is the evidence that supports that this thought might be true, that this cashier can't be trusted. And so this is a point at which a client might tell you, here are the reasons I believe this might be true. So I'm you know, making up some examples here for Sammy. So he might say, I don't know them that well, or uh, you know, I don't know what the devil looks like, so it could be her. And so again, then we say, great, good information here. And we're gonna look at next, so what are the, on the other side of the coin, um, what's the evidence that says it might not be true? Is it possible that there's any information that tells us that there's a reason she might be able to be trusted? So Sammy might come up with something like, they haven't done anything strange that I know of, or the devil is probably very busy and doesn't have time to visit me. You'd be surprised by the, the amount of um, answers like that, that people come up with. Um, I don't have any specific reason not to trust them. Or why would they have anything against me in particular? What actually makes me so special? And what makes me so special that the devil is making an appearance in my life? So that's part of what you're looking at. And again, you're validating somebody's experience again here by being like, you're doing an awesome job. Thank you for participating with me with this. I know it's sometimes hard to look at a thought that feels really, really true, but it's just an opportunity for us to explore if there's any other possible explanations for why this might have happened. So the last thing I'm going to do with this activity is I would say to them, okay, so what percent do you believe it's true now? And what your hope is for is that the client has some reduction in that percentage. So for example, he might say, I think it's 60% true in this example. So we hope for that, it doesn't always happen. And that's why we have another backup strategy we get to use. Okay, so questions about the cognitive model so far, type them in the chat and we'll all answer some of them. And then we're gonna move next to um, what we would do if we didn't get any change in that percentage.
Okay, so clients with very minimal insight, what, how effective is it? Great question, Gloria. So it actually is still quite effective for people who don't have insight. Because part of our goal here um, is that we're targeting any hint of doubt. So for clients who only have like a 1% level of insight or, or even feel like 0%, we are often able to get at that thought in some way. And the great part about CBTP is if this doesn't work, if this client is like, no, it's 100% true, I'm not changing my mind about it, we have other options for what we can do next. So the next thing we would do in a situation like this, if we notice no change, is that they might try to say something, we might say, okay, let's then weigh the pros and cons of whether believing this thought is worth it, right? If, if this is having some kind of negative impact on your life, does it make sense for you to feel this way? And then we would go into some of the strategies. Again, we're going to review those more in detail tomorrow about how we might actually then manage our emotional reaction. Because again, it's not always the thought itself that's the problem. It's about our reaction to that thought. Okay, and Juliana is asking here, uh, how do I respond when a client consistently tries to get me to admit that I'm part of the conspiracy, FBI, CIA, et cetera? Okay, so this is a common one. Um, great example. So there's not one way to do this, right? So part of what I might actually do with a client in this situation would be to say, okay, hypothetically, um, if I were part of this group, um, what would I need to do to gain your trust to show you that I was on your side? So I might engage them in a conversation around that for somebody who really has no insight in that situation. I might try doing a thought, an example here with them. I might say, you know, is there a point at which we need to find a different therapist? Because one of the things that can happen with somebody who is very symptomatic or very engaged in their thoughts and not finding a lot of like ability to kind of separate from them is that sometimes we have to switch to a new provider because you have been, become part of the delusional or distressing thought process. And there's no way to extricate yourself at that point. So that's something to also consider is when is, does it make sense to also switch with somebody? Um, would a cost-benefit analysis help if the pros and cons isn't enough? Yes, actually, so the pros and cons cost-benefit analysis is actually the same thing, just a different term for it, which is what we're going to get to next. Great questions, everyone. All right, so let's keep going and we'll come back to some more questions at the end because we've got just about 20 minutes left. Thanks for all your thoughtful questions. Okay, so we're going to look through this. Okay, so let's go through what the um, pros and cons or cost-benefit analysis, as you named it, um, would actually look like. So let's say we get no movement around this thought for Sammy. What we might think about instead would be to say, okay, so if it feels like this is 100% true or true enough that you can't shake the thought, what are we going to do in that case? Let's look at whether it still makes sense to believe in this thought if it's having this significant impact on you. So what we might come up with is a list of pros and cons. Um, so I would look at with a client and say, okay, so what are the benefits of believing that she can't be trusted? How does it actually help you? And so this client might come up with something like, um, I can maybe keep myself safe, right? Because I'm on guard or vigilant because I think somebody can't be trusted. And again, sometimes this is related to trauma and there's good reasons for somebody to feel like they need to be vigilant. And other times this comes out of the blue. So then we might look at, okay, so then if we can't come up with any other kind of pros or benefits to believing this is true, what are the downsides? How does this actually impact you to believe that she can't be trusted? 
So that person, you know, Sammy might come up with something like, I can't trust somebody I like, like the cashier, because they have a relationship before this. Um, I feel scared. I isolate myself because I feel afraid to trust other people. Uh, I start looking for the devil everywhere, right? This is, there's a number of things somebody might come up with. And part of what we're trying to help them is really look at what are the downsides to believing this is true? Because even though it feels real as hell in that moment, is it actually going to be useful to you to believe it? And so part of then, if, for example, Sammy came up with this list and then looked at it and said, wow, there are clearly a lot of downsides to me believing this is true, but I still, I just feel like I can't shake it. That's when we move into, okay, what are the strategies we're going to use when this thought comes up so that we can cope with it? Because the reality is, um, I may not be able to let go of this thought. And so how do I accept it, right? How do I give myself some distance by saying almost like an act approach, acceptance and commitment therapy of, okay, so this thought is here. How do I mindfully become aware of it rather than just automatically getting consumed by it? Or how can I notice the way it's impacting me emotionally so I can engage in some distress tolerance skills? Again, we're going to talk a lot more in detail about this tomorrow. And I'm like really talking up tomorrow, but we're going to be talking a lot about, um, strategies that you can actually start using once people start to um, have an awareness that this is, process is happening for them. Okay, great. Okay. So again, this is just a review. We're targeting any hint of doubt. We're using that scale again to kind of re-rate zero to hundred percent how much they believe it's true. We're really, again, eliciting from the client their experience and we're contributing as a therapist what we see as well, if they trust us, right? That's kind of dependent on a relationship with them. And I will also ask permission a lot with these clients to say, okay, like, would it be okay for us to explore this thought in more detail, even though I know it feels really true? Um, or, you know, do you feel like it would be okay for me to contribute some of my thoughts? Um, because again, we want to work on building that relationship. We get that by getting from consent from our clients. And we also build that up just by virtue of, um, uh, be like asking if we're able to contribute in the sense of like, do they trust us enough to trust what we would give us feedback? And if they don't, you might say, bring this home to somebody, a loved one who you do trust, and then try and run through it together to see what their opinion might be in a situation. One might be that you trust their judgment better than mine. Okay. Um, and lastly, just one thing to think about, and you all know this already, but I'm just going to say it for the heck of it, which is, you want to avoid direct challenges to the belief. Um, so you're never going to tell a client, it's just not true. Like, just start believing something else, right? In any of those kinds of ways, it is never going to help them. It's going to be invalidating, of course. So you're really using what's called guided discovery, or sometimes we call it the Socratic method, where we're just exploring the belief. We might ask questions again, like, huh, how does that work that others are able to read your mind? Or how does someone come by this kind of a talent? Or when did this first occur to you? What else was going on at that time? What else might have accounted for that, right? So we're asking these in a non-judgmental kind of thoughtful, exploratory way. Okay, so just for the sake of time, I'm going to skip our second example with Sammy. Um, and what I want us to do is I want to give us an opportunity to spend the next few minutes doing a question and answer, because it looks like you all have some more questions in here that I want to give you the opportunity to ask. So we'll skip this. Um, if people want to go through another one tomorrow, I'm more than happy to do it. But let's open it up to questions. Um, so I'm going to just turn off my PowerPoint so you can see my face again. Give me just a second. Okay, hi everyone. Now I can see you all again, which I'm thrilled about. 
All right. Um, okay, so go ahead. I'm going to start going through. Actually, Jean, can I have you go through the comment section to see if there's any that I missed? And then if you have more questions or comments, please add them in and we'll talk more about them in detail. Um, I, I'm thinking, I see the most recent one is a CBT for psychosis manual that you recommend. And then I'm going to go up and just double check everything. Perfect. Thanks, Jean. I know there's a lot in there. Um, yeah, there actually are several. So, um, Oh, I don't have them here. I forgot them in my home office. Um, there are a bunch. What might be most useful is maybe after tomorrow, I will have the crew send out a list of resources for you all because there's there's pretty abundant ones. There's even a CBTP network that just started in New York um, that you can become part of, for example, that they have a lot of great resources. There are a lot of books. There's a group treatment manual. There's all kinds of things that exist that might help you too. So what I'll go ahead and do is I'll send you all a resource list. Um, that way you can kind of have a couple of options for yourself. Does that sound okay? Okay. There was just a comment earlier from Gabriella about how medications usually reduce symptoms rather than eliminate them and seem to only be effective for a proportion of patients when we were talking about medications earlier. Yeah, good comment. I mean, I think the reality that you all know and see is that medications come with so many side effects, some of which are really impairing to the functioning of somebody's life and really challenging to cope with. And so we don't push medications in CBTP, right? We might give psychoeducation about how they work. We might talk about problem solving if somebody's having an issue taking them consistently. But we, I wouldn't say we take a harm reduction approach. I am a harm reductionist, but those two worlds don't always kind of overlap exactly. But we do take the approach of you are in charge of your own body. You make your decisions for yourself. I'm here to help you make those decisions in an informed kind of way. But you get to decide ultimately what feels right for you. And then I didn't, I found a virtual CBT for psychosis group, the Hearing Voices Network. It originated in the UK and they have it over here now, but I didn't know if you had any other recommendations for virtual support groups for those with psychosis. Yeah, so the Hearing Voices Network is one of my favorite groups. They are, um, again, coming out of the UK, I don't know why all this originated in the UK, although I'm, I'm very grateful for their work there and also in Australia, which is around the idea of normalizing the experience of like psychotic experiences, right? And so they have done a lot to try to shift the culture um, with the idea that it's not really always about the experience of psychosis that's the problem. It's the idea that it's not a normal quote unquote experience in our culture in general, right, across the board. So one of the things that uh, CBTP and the Hearing Voices Network try to do is to say, okay, let's also change the environment for a client because it's not enough to just say um, that you have your experience and we're gonna pathologize you as not normal. We also need as a society to make some shifts to be able to accept who you are as a normal part of society. I keep using the word normal. I know that's a very relative term, but that's part of what is trying to be done in that regard. So Hearing Voices is also based in California too. They have a few networks, both in the Bay Area and in the LA area. So you might look into groups. They've just started offering them online as well. Um, so the second question was, are there other online resources in that regard? Not that I know about, to be honest, as far as CBTP groups. Um, there are often local clinics who will offer them. So for example, Kaiser runs a lot of those, um, although you have to be a Kaiser patient, of course, to access those. They do offer them a lot of times at prep or early intervention programs. So for your local LA kind of base clinics, that might be one really nice way to find out. 
um, would be to contact them to see if they have the opportunity to do that. Looks like somebody is pointing to their ear. They can't hear me. Polly, can everyone else hear me? Okay. All right. It's, Polly, you might want to send a message to David um, to see if he can problem solve with you. Sorry about that. Um, okay, so somebody's saying First Hope in Contra Costa County. Yeah, First Hope is a great example of a program um, that's based up here where I am that does early intervention work for people. Again, I would look for your local kind of clinics who do that work as well, because um, they tend to offer CBTP or like family psychoeducation groups in that same way. Great. Um, and then we're just back to the questions that we have coming in now. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you. Yeah. And how can we use CBT with clients who have delusions of physical symptoms? Um, I'm, I'm guessing like something like a, um, like a tactile hallucination, like feeling bugs moving on your skin, that type of thing. Um, really similarly, actually. So again, tomorrow we're going to talk about this a lot more in detail, but when I think about um, those types of hallucinations, so, so tactile hallucinations, I'm, I'm gonna just name those for example, tend to be most common for people who are using substances concurrently. So in particular, methamphetamine is the biggest one that I see that happen with. So um, part of what we might wanna do is we're talking about if there is method use involved, it doesn't always mean there is. There are of course people who experience tactile hallucinations otherwise, but we might that might be something we wanna look into. Um, but aside from that, there might be strategies around self-soothing that we want to do, right? So, for example, in part of what CBTP has started to integrate is a lot of the skills from kind of what like third wave therapies, so DBT, ACT, et cetera. And so that might be things like we might want to practice mindfulness with them of like awareness of when it's happening. We might want to have them keep a log where they say, okay, I'm going to write down every time this starts. Am I feeling stressed when it starts? Is it because I'm eating or, you know, using a substance? Is it like, what is it that is causing this to happen and starting to notice patterns? You might also work on the, in the DBT manual, there's the self-soothing skills with the five senses where you're going through and doing things that help you relax into your body based on being aware of your body, right? Somatic approaches take that same kind of idea. And I might work on that with somebody too. And lastly, if somebody is so distressed when they happened, part of the work we might do is actually distraction, right? So like, let's take your mind off of it so it doesn't feel quite so distracting and intense. And then maybe we come back and deal with whatever the stressor was or the thing that might've been causing it in the first place. Great. Um, Suzanne had a comment that the model feels very graspable if you are trained in CBT in general. Mm -hmm. And then Eve has a question of, instead of the cashier the client feels that same way about you the therapist can you work on it even if you are part of the distressing beliefs absolutely yes definitely um so let me answer that kind of question first so yeah i, I this is something we might use all the time actually with clients right so that's part of what is so important about building that relationship is that you might use this tool throughout the relationship building if you don't have that to start with so for example um if I have a client who thinks I'm the devil, right, for example, or who thinks I'm part of the CIA, like somebody mentioned an example earlier, part of my work might be like, okay, so let's explore how this is impacting your ability to trust me, why it's coming up maybe for me specifically, right? Is there something about um, who I am, right? For example, as a white person, is there something about um, the fact that I'm involved with mental health institutions and you've recently been hospitalized? Like what, we might kind of explore a little bit of that to, again, to get an idea of like, where is this coming from, kind of that assessment phase. 
And then our interventions might look really different depending on the person we're working with. So again, um, similar to before, like how do, are there ways we can build the relationship? And we might ask that in a collaborative way. We might use the ABC model to challenge one of the thoughts if it feels like there's some room. We might work on, again, the idea of like, what are the cost benefit or the pros and cons of believing this thought about me to be true? Like, does that impact your ability to get services? Um, is it a struggle for you in session? And then lastly, if there's not any way for us to break through that, um, can you accept that there's a possibility I might be part of that, even though I say I'm not, and can we still work together anyway? And if there's not, Maybe that means we change providers. That's always a possibility and something I kind of put on the table for people if we can't build that. But we try to really work on it with the client first because we know that not all of us is a good fit for the client. That sometimes has to do with us personally, our identities, our personalities. Um, and sometimes it's about what the client is bringing to the table that might be about history or just how they're feeling in that moment. You know, there are times where we catch a client where they are more symptomatic and more or lacking insight at that moment in time. And that's, that's chance, right? That's just kind of timing sometimes too. Great. Michelle asked if this model sees the same level of success for people experiencing psychosis for longer periods of time versus in earlier stages of psychosis. Oh, great question. Um, so for people who would be at like high risk of developing psychosis or like prodromal in those early intervention programs, we see for people who are intervening with CBTP, um, because medication actually isn't a first line treatment for people who are prodromal, um, which is sometimes a surprise to some people. So we see the likelihood that things will not develop into a full psychotic episode or a psychotic disorder being actually quite high. I don't know the specific number, I'd have to look it up, but the outcomes are, the, I think in some ways the best in that population, because again, each time somebody has a psychotic episode, their brain chemistry and the way they think about the world is slightly shifted each time. So we do tend to have better outcomes when we can intervene early, which is why early intervention is so important in prevention. That being said, we can still make gains for people who've had further episodes later in the world, you know, later in their life. So, you know, some of you probably work with elders, for example, who've been experiencing psychotic episodes their whole life and maybe haven't had any treatment by that point in their life. And this is still going to be effective for them. It may be that it's harder to challenge the thoughts and maybe our work is more around acceptance. So how do we deal with the reality that you are having these symptoms? How do we make you more comfortable? Uh, what are things we can do that will just help you have, you know, do the things that you want to do in your life? Again, that kind of focus on functional recovery. The other thing I would add is that when pe there was a treatment called, I think you all may have had a training on this in the series called um, recovery oriented cognitive therapy, uh, which is also a really nice form of treatment that was developed specifically for people who didn't benefit from CBTP. So that is also another thing that I always like to be able to bring up because sometimes people don't get what they need out of CBTP. I mean, it's not a fit for everyone realistically. And so it may be that that might be a better fit for them. And again, that's all kind of recovery oriented treatment in general as well. The focus really is on just get you back to the things that you want to be doing with your life. And then Jessica asks if CBT for psychosis therapy, does the approach vary if the client's psychosis is probably substance use induced? Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so if it's likely that it's, well, okay, let me ask this clarifying question. Or it depends on if it's only that episode, for example, is substance induced. So for example, if people have no history of psychosis and 
they have an episode that's induced and it's just induced by substances. It's not going to be a lingering psychotic disorder. In that case, yeah, the approach is definitely really different. You work on doing whatever you can around harm reduction or abstinence, depending on your model, to help that person um, either use substances more safely without the risk of psychosis or stop using them if that's a goal or reduce use. Um, if the question is more about people then who have an episode, like I think you will probably see this really commonly as well, but somebody who's using marijuana heavily, who then has their symptoms brought on as a result of the marijuana use, and they also have a psychotic disorder, we treat them not actually terribly differently, right? Where our focus is on, again, we'll talk more about this tomorrow, but reducing the vulnerabilities somebody has. So one of the vulnerabilities we have to developing psychotic symptoms is drug use, right, amongst a whole list of other things, like not sleeping well, not getting enough food, uh, hygiene problems, not taking meds, right, everything we can name on that list. And so that becomes then one part of our treatment if that client is willing to work on it. And sometimes they're not, right? You know, we meet people where they're at in all different ways. And so perhaps our work is then all around psychoeducation and helping them use in a more safe way, depending on, again, their goal in that moment. Does that answer your question? I wasn't sure if that was which one of those is what you were thinking about. Oh, yes, she says yes. Okay, great. <laughs> and then we have a comment, um, but it brings up an interesting point too. Um, of Gloria saying she has a client who believes she has bowel obstruction and refuses to eat as a result mm -hmm. due to the symptoms. So just wondering if you have any recommendations for that. Yeah, so great question. I mean, I think this brings up a, an example of something where there is a direct harm to somebody's bodily function, right, in general, the same way psychotic um, thoughts can present for other people, right? So for, I, for example, I've had a client who drank bleach because they felt like they had to be cleansed, right? Like things that present more of an immediate risk. Um, in that case, I mean, obviously the first thing is around safety. So like whatever you need to do to get that client to have nutrition in their body is the focus in general. Um, the secondary thing to me then is, you know, whether it's medical intervention or whatever needs to be done, the secondary focus then is maybe, are there, like, do we want to help you work around more mindfulness-based approaches to understand, like, okay, how do I feel physically in my body? How does it feel when I put food in my body? How do I challenge the thought around, um, I, have, I believe I have a bowel obstruction. Of course, you want to get medical diagnosis to rule that out, of course, first with any of this stuff, but that might be some of the work that you're doing. We can talk about that example more tomorrow, I think, as well, and applying to some of the examples we're going to come up with. Great. And then Eve has a comment slash question. At the NAMI National Convention last year, two of the main speakers did a presentation on CBD for psychosis with a mm -hmm. focus on training family members along with the clients. Do you also work with family members, and will you be addressing that? Yes, definitely. Um, as much as I can engage somebody's support system, I will. Um, and again, clients are at varying uh, desires to have other people in their life involved if they do have other people in their life, right? Either because of trauma, um, changes in the relationship, rejection by family, different cultural understandings of mental health system. I mean, there's so many reasons clients may not have loved ones involved. But if they do have somebody or we can work on developing that support system, which is also one of the goals in CBTP is finding you more natural supports, we do try to engage them. So we are going to talk briefly on that tomorrow at the end of our day. Um, it probably deserves its own lecture, to be honest, because I think that work is really mission critical. But I think to give you the short snapshot, part of what we're trying to do is teach family members ways to 
not be their loved one's therapist, but be able to integrate CBTP approaches, right? So how can they be validating to their emotions without um, saying that what their thought is is true, right? Um, how can we teach them skills to help remind their loved one, like, here's what you can do if you're feeling really distressed in this moment. Um, we teach them strategies around safety management, right? Because that can be sometimes an issue that comes up with loved ones. Like when, for example, to have a different type of intervention that's a higher level. Uh, we might also help them, I think just in general, be able to ask curious, non-judgmental questions. And one of the best ways we do that is by modeling that, right? We bring family members into sessions and show them like, this is how I talk to your loved one about these issues. This is how I ask curious questions. What if you took a similar approach with them? Um, how would that look for you? So yes, we absolutely do work like that. I think it is mission critical um, when we can do it. And so I would definitely encourage it. And we'll talk a little bit more about it tomorrow. And then Stephanie asks, do you find CBT for psychosis as effective in patients with comorbid psychosis and personality um, disorders or traits? Um, I don't know if I have a quick answer to that. I mean, I have a number of clients, for example, with um, what might be considered like BPD, for example, borderline personality disorder. And so I'm a DBT therapist. That's my other training. And I integrate a lot of DBT skills, work with people who have overlapping diagnoses. Um, one of the things, and I could talk about this for a long time, I won't just for the sake of time, but is that there's a lot of overlap in the criteria between psychosis and BPD, for example, um, right, in terms of, uh, so BP, BPD was named as it was the borderline between basically neurosis and psychosis. That's, that's the original, how that term came about. It's not really the greatest, but that's where it is. And so part of what people experience, right, is mistrust to the point sometimes of paranoia, um, difficulty trusting other people, um, difficulty trusting their own emotions, um, engaging in self-harm or substance use behavior, use behaviors, right, all kinds of things that overlap between those two worlds, including trauma, which is at the root of a lot of these things in general. So I don't know that I have data about like how CBTP works with both of those. That being said, for people who do have overlap between, you know, a personality disorder, for example, and psychosis, I do find there are ways to integrate other approaches that are really complementary and that already are being implemented in terms of CBTP. So for example, like those DBT skills, mindfulness, ACT approaches, et cetera. So that's the quick answer. I have more to say on it for another time. You can always message me offline, but um, yeah, I think it can be very effective in that regard. All right, so welcome back to day two of CBT for Psychosis. Uh, again, my name is Maggie Mullen. I use they, them pronouns. We are going to talk a little bit more about Sammy today. So Sammy is the person that we spoke about yesterday. And I just wanna remind you a little bit about Sammy in case you've forgotten from yesterday. Okay, so Sammy is a 35-year-old black bisexual cisgender man diagnosed with schizophrenia. Uh, he grew up in a tight-knit multi-generational household. Again, family history of grandparent having breakdowns, quote unquote. He was bullied growing up, particularly around his sexuality um, and for acting like a girl, quote unquote. He had two hospitalizations while he was in high school after he stopped sleeping because he believed his electronics were being tapped by the FBI and also believed there was a chip installed in his brain. He's now on a monthly injectable medication. He sees a social worker. He takes classes and has a few close friends. And one of his coping strategies is to smoke marijuana um, to deal with his stress and finds that sometimes it increases his suspicious thoughts. Okay, so update on Sammy. So Sammy now is... 
uh, in his second year at community college, and he is applying for a transfer to a four-year university. He has some important exams coming up, and his parents have been arguing a lot about financial issues because Sammy's father just lost his job. His parents have asked Sammy to get a job to try to help support the family. And unfortunately, due to the stress of the situation, Sammy starts hearing critical voices frequently. They keep him up at night by distracting him and saying things to him like, you're such a loser, just give up, and other people hate you. So the lack of sleep, um, so his difficulty with sleep at night actually increases his emotional vulnerability, so he's more irritable much of the time, which causes him to feel also more suspicious or paranoid of others. So that's Sammy's current situation. So we're going to be looking at one of my favorite skills from CBT, and CBTP is specifically called the stress bucket. So some of you, again, who are familiar with CBT, may be familiar with this metaphor. I think it is works really, really well with psychosis. Um, okay, so if I'm in a group or I'm working with a client, for example, I will either pull out this worksheet or I will attempt to draw it on my whiteboard. And the idea here is we are using this metaphor of the idea that when you are feeling stressed, we think of there being a bucket. And each of us has a certain amount of normal stress at any given point, right? We have to pay the bills, we have to support ourselves financially, we maybe have childcare or elder care responsibilities, uh, we have a job and things that come with that, right? There's a certain amount of stress we all just carry on a daily basis. And then there's something on here we've referred to as the buffer zone. And the buffer zone is like when we have this bucket that we fill more with water based on what's happening in our life. So stress is water in this metaphor. So one example might be um, if I lose my job, that's going to add a lot more water to my bucket. Um, if I am having relationship conflict or I am uh, I have the loss of a family member or a loved one or some kind of stressor happens to me, we start adding water more and more to that bucket. And eventually what happens with any bucket that's full is it overflows. And so the overflow is the area over on the left on the PowerPoint where there's that red box. Um, where the idea is when overflow happens, we end up experiencing mental health symptoms. Um, even for those of us who don't have a mental health diagnosis, we experience things like, um, you know, increase in overwhelming emotions. We have difficulty sleeping. Maybe we feel anxious more often, right? We all experience some version of that when we're really stressed out. And so with CBTP, part of what we're looking at is what are the symptoms this might be causing you when you do feel overwhelmed by stress, right? All right, so um, again, part of what we're looking at over here on the left is the overflow from when stress is high, so when this bucket starts to get full. And in particular, what that looks like for people with psychosis are symptoms, right? So difficulty sleeping at night, racing thoughts, uh, anxiety, difficulty being around people and wanting to socially isolate, um, hearing voices, seeing things other people aren't seeing, like visual hallucinations, um, feeling like the television or other things are broadcasting messages to you, right? All of the symptoms of psychosis that can happen that tend to get worse with stress. And so part of how we explain this metaphor to a client is to say, let's look at all the different stressors that are involved in your life and how this might be causing your bucket to be overflowing either right now or in the past when you've had an episode. And part of our job then is to look over here on the right where there is a kind of a spigot coming out of the bucket where part of our job is how do we release some of that water from the bucket either by 
taking some responsibilities off your plate if that's possible, and if not, using other coping strategies to deal with the stress more effectively. So what we're going to do together is we're going to look at Sammy's example that we just talked about um, and go through together how we might fill this out with the client. So I'm going to just backtrack for a second so you guys can be reminded of what we were talking about with Sammy. Okay. So his current situation, just to review a couple highlights, is so he's um, applying to a four-year college right now. His exam's coming up, and his parents have been arguing a lot about financial stress. Um, he has been hearing a lot of critical voices, and he's having difficulty sleeping. He's irritable a lot of the time, and he's a little bit more suspicious than others than usual. Okay, great. So in the comment section, I'm going to have you all contribute to this. So the first four... Um, uh, boxes at the top that are in white that have uh, water basically being poured into the bucket are the areas we would write in the different stressors somebody has going on. So I want you all to contribute in the chat section and tell me what are the types of stressors Sammy has happening in his life right now that might be adding to that water being poured into the bucket. Okay, so no sleep, financial stress, he's applying for college, parents are arguing, Absolutely. Great examples. He has those tests coming up he's having to handle. Parents aren't getting along. Uh-huh. Good. Okay, great. And you know what? Actually, I think this is a great example somebody put on here, Michelle, about hearing voices. Hearing voices can sometimes be the thing that is more stressful for somebody, and it can also be placed in that red area of the symptoms that happen, because as we know, there's kind of a cycle sometimes with uh, hearing voices where the voices themselves might be the thing that are stressing us out and causing that increase in stress or emotional overwhelm causes us to hear more voices that are even more critical. So sometimes this can go in either area depending on the scenario. So if I were working, oh, and let me just see, there's some other comments here. Social issues of adjustment, feelings of isolation as a black uh, bisexual man with a serious mental health disorder. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, everything that comes with that, both in terms of um, internalized notions uh, around sexuality, um, in addition to maybe how he's been discriminated against in some social settings as well, or within his own family, potentially. All right. So if we were working with Sammy, what we would do is we would, I'm going to go to the next slide here, start filling some of these in. So you all named a few, right? Some of those stressors that, again, are being added to the bucket in Sammy's life right now. So the next question then is, what are the types of symptoms or kind of overflow that's coming out of that bucket that are interfering with Sammy's life? So go ahead and write those into the comment section if you haven't already. So when we look at the things that might be showing up again in this next area that you all have mentioned, so he's not getting very much sleep at night. He's hearing voices regularly that in particular are critical of him, so pretty tough on him. And then he's also starting to notice some suspicious thoughts. So again, that's the overflow of the types of symptoms or, stress or things that can be caused by the stress for him. So then lastly, we're going to look at that last area of, okay, so now that we see the full picture of what's happening, what are the things we could do? So for example, are there things that we could take off Sammy's plate right now that are not time pressing responsibilities, for example? Or are there coping skills we can encourage him to use that would help manage all of these stressors a little bit better? So again, let's have you put in the comment section down here. What are the types of things you might recommend to Sammy given all that he's going through right now?
Okay, so possible accommodations at college for more time. Yeah, that's a really creative idea. So whatever he needs to do in that regard, making a to-do list, so kind of helping navigate all of that and kind of um, put it in order. Uh, looking to working with a college advisor, advisor or career counselor. Great. Asking for extension with TAS. Uh-huh. Um, prioritizing, so figuring out perhaps what's most important and needs to get done. Some sleep hygiene strategies. Great. Uh, building up his support system, asking for help from professors. Oh, writing his parents a letter? Sure, right, so maybe communicating how he's feeling to his family or attending some kind of a group. All great examples here. So those are all things that could go into this next area here that you all have come up with. The two that I put in here that I know about Sammy, he's a little bit of a, uh, he's not a, a real client, but sort of an amalgamation of a bunch of different clients of mine. So for him, one of the things is he loves going for walks. He plays video games. Um, again, we talk about video games. How long you're engaging with video games is an important part of how helpful a coping skill can be, right? If somebody is playing video games for 12 hours at a time, not getting their work done, less helpful than maybe playing for an hour or two to keep your mind off your stress. So all of these things in moderation, right? Um, and then somebody else has a comment here of exploring ways to get community resources to help with family financial situation. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. So maybe it means, for example, talking to me as his social worker to say, um, are there any uh, financial resources that could help my parents who are going through this? Yeah, absolutely. Great examples, you all. All right. The other things I would think about, and we'll talk about more in detail, but about are there strategies he can use to actually cope with the voices as well. So, for example, for some people, talking to other people is one way to get their mind off of their voices. So actually using their voice out loud or singing. Other things might be wearing earplugs, right? That's something that can be very helpful for people. And I say earplugs, ear not earphones. Sometimes people get confused on those two. So a lot of different options. Okay. Great work, everyone. So the stress book is something you're going to have a copy of this a worksheet that you can start using with clients right away. Um, so the next step that we talk about in CBTP is now that we understand what stressors Sammy might be looking at in his life and how that might be affecting him. And you've kind of described that in a way that he can understand. Then we work on those coping strategies and kind of beefing up um, what he already knows to do. And again, we always want to elicit from a client, what are you already doing that works? Because, you know, they know themselves best and they're creative in all kinds of ways. And part of what I sometimes go through with people is like, what are your healthier quote unquote strategies and what are your less healthy strategies? Like I want to know the full picture um, because it helps us get an idea of what might be contributing to everything that's going on, right? So there might be some strategies that work great in the short term, but also come from consequences in the long term. So for example, you know, in Sammy's case, he talks about, you know, he uses marijuana. Sometimes that helps. Other times it increases those suspicious thoughts. So how do we work with something like that that may be helpful sometimes, but not consistently so? Okay. So let's talk about coping skills in general for psychosis. We're going to break these down into more specific areas, but in general, CBTP has really um, uses all of a, a full spectrum of coping skills, right? So we start with things that we've already reviewed together. So identifying unhelpful thinking, also known as cognitive distortions, um, and helping clients examine the evidence. We're going to talk about these in more detail, but skills to help cope with voices. We talk a lot about problem solving, um, which comes out sometimes with the stress bucket metaphor of like, how do we uh, work around the stresses that you have in your life? And we also use exposure techniques, again, for anxiety or for PTSD type symptoms. 
And we're also moving a lot more towards acceptance and mindfulness. So again, when seeing more research that's been done around um, ACT, for example, and mindfulness for psychosis, uh, starting to use strategies like that as well and integrate that into their work. So again, a lot of these are things that you're probably already doing, but I like to kind of just lay it out on the table so we can look at them together. So today we're going to be we're going to talk a little bit about strategies uh, that help prevent symptom intensity and distress overall. That's sort of the idea. And one of the things we talk about is how do we actually reduce a client's vulnerability to symptoms? And I would also say to emotional overwhelm and stress. So the way that I think about this section here is um, a vulnerability is anything that makes it more likely for you to feel stressed out or to feel emotionally overwhelmed. So for example, if a client hasn't slept well the night before, they're more likely to be irritable, they're more likely to be suspicious, they're more likely to have their symptoms kind of flare up. Um, and again, this goes for all people across the board, whether we have mental health issues or not, that there are certain vulnerabilities that put us more on edge. So this is a little bit like prevention work is the way I think about it. So what are the things we can do that are going to make it less likely that you're experiencing symptoms? So stress vulnerability model to go back to that. We work on reducing stress. Um, we work on decreasing drug use. So again, depending on where the client's at with regard to that, um, drug use, of course, can often exacerbate symptoms of psychosis or even bring them on in the first place. So we want to focus on that if it's appropriate. We also want to increase pleasurable and meaningful activities in somebody's life. So again, when we're thinking about, I think I mentioned this yesterday, but those scales of like uh, negative experiences or challenging emotions that are coming up for somebody, uh, we want to increase the number of pleasurable or meaningful activities they have to try to balance those scales a little bit more so that there's more emphasis on the side of pleasurable or enjoyable activities in somebody's life, because it also helps us build resilience for dealing with the more challenging ones, which people with psychosis, of course, experience more of than many of us, right, in terms of, you know, housing instability, rejection from society, inability to work, right, all of those things that come with the stigma of psychosis and also just the impact of the severity of their symptoms they might be experiencing. We also work on increasing medication consistency. Again, I talked about this a little bit yesterday, so I won't go into it too much, but about um, that this can be a part of somebody's treatment. It also doesn't have to be, but this is a focus when it's appropriate. And lastly, we want to work on reducing isolation. So many of you all know that um, it is really common for people with psychosis to isolate themselves. And there are a number of reasons that we've mentioned before around, you know, rejection, trauma, uh, social anxiety, discrimination, all kinds of things, including the symptoms themselves that cause people to isolate themselves. They don't want to feel like a burden to somebody else. They don't want to accidentally harm somebody else um, if they have a voice telling them um, you know, to harm somebody, for example. So there are a lot of things that we can do in this area to help increase connections. And again, I've talked about how much I love groups. This is a big plug to me, again, for creating groups at your clinics or at your sites if you don't already have those running. Okay, so this is a skill actually from DBT. So let me be clear, this is not a CBT for psychosis skill, but it goes really nicely, I think, with this idea of how do we reduce vulnerabilities. So for those of you who are at all familiar with DBT, this is the ABC PLEASE skill. And in DBT in particular, we use a ton of acronyms. This is no exception. Um, so again, to just run through this skill, and I often, oh, somebody's saying they love this skill. I do too, thank you. Um, so again, accumulating positive emotions. So that's the part about encouraging people to do one pleasurable thing a day. And that can be a really small thing. That could be 
um, you know, spend 10 minutes journaling. It could be uh, masturbate. It could be, um, you know, spend time with a loved one or call somebody or text somebody, right? It can be anything that just brings like a tiny spark of enjoyment to your life. Um, and particularly for people who experience negative symptoms, where they're maybe not wanting to spend time with people or they feel very flat or their emotions are not um, very present in an obvious way. This is one where people may not experience that immediate pleasure. So part of our role is about sort of measuring, having people say, okay, before I did this event, how did I feel? And after I did this event, how did I feel then? So I might have people like rank on a, like a, a pleasure scale, for example, of like zero to a hundred. I might say like, tell me before you did it and then tell me how you feel after you did it in comparison to see do we notice any change? Because if so, we want to keep having them do that same once. They have kind of that, that data or that information that it does work for them. Okay, so building mastery. This is a skill, again, from DBT, um, where the idea is doing things that you feel competent doing. So, for example, uh, like one thing for me in building mastery is doing things I know I'm good at. So, uh, this is a small thing, but like doing the laundry, right? I can do something where I have a very clear outcome where everything is done, it's folded, it's put away. And I get a sense of like, oh, like that feels good to be able to do that. Um, so things like that in somebody's life. Um, it could also be like somebody who's a great, you know, loves doing art, like being able to do something that they know that they're good at or can feel a sense of accomplishment after doing. Then we look at coping ahead of times with emotional situations. So if you know that there are certain situations that are gonna stress you out in your life, right? Like something that you're heading into, like a difficult conversation, for example, or you know, challenges with a family member, we might say ahead of time, what do we need to do to help you deal with both how you wanna approach the situation, but also the potential outcome that this could go negatively, how you're gonna deal with it afterward. So kind of helping somebody prepare ahead of time for that. And then lastly, this is a big part of probably what you're already doing in your work, which is taking care of your mind by taking care of your body. So this looks like having clients work on um, prioritizing sleep, so sleep hygiene strategies, having them work on exercising in some way or moving their body regularly, um, having them avoid mood-altering substances when possible, uh, balancing their diet within the framework of the finances they have and the access to food they have. So trying to do those types of things that are going to help just give them a bit of stability, I think, overall in their life. Okay, so there's a question here. How do we balance the coping ahead of time without people worrying the future about the future too much? Yeah, great question, right? Because anxiety often helps or leads to us dreading something in the future. So the coping ahead skill from DBT, just to give you a quick overview, is actually really helpful for people who catastrophize about the future. Because we're able to say, okay, let's say hypothetically, your worst case scenario does happen, right? Like um, you're having that conversation with your family member and they actually do reject you. They say no to your request and they say like, get out of my life. Sure, that might be something people worry about. So what I have them do is to say, okay, if it does happen, what are you going to do to take care of yourself so that you can actually be prepared for that potential outcome so you don't have to worry about it so much now? So what are you going to do afterward? Who are you going to call? Who are you going to talk to? Who are going to be your supports to lean on? Uh, what are the skills you might use, et cetera? And for a lot of people with anxiety, it gives them the opportunity to be like, okay, at least I don't have to ruminate about this as much because I have an aftercare plan if it does happen. So that's a quick answer to your question. More we could say on that another time. Okay. All right, so I'm gonna pull up a poll here. Give me just one second. 
So we're going to turn to auditory hallucinations. All right, so here's the question for you all to respond to. How common are auditory hallucinations in psychotic spectrum disorders? So PSDs are psychotic spectrum disorders. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and close the poll. Thanks everyone who participated. All right. Oh, okay. You all got it. So the answer is 60 to 80%. Really well done, you all. I'm very impressed. Um, so it is, uh, again, this is sort of a based on research that we currently have, knowing the limitations of research, what's assumed to be about 60 to 80% of people with psychotic spectrum disorders experience auditory hallucinations. So hearing voices, hearing sounds that other people aren't hearing, um, noises, uh, banging, clanging, all kinds of different sounds. So really good work, everyone. Okay. So what we know is auditory hallucinations are incredibly common for psychotic spectrum disorders. So one of the things I'd be curious about if you all have heard about before, but is that Again, when we're talking about normalizing auditory hallucinations and the experience of psychotic symptoms, we actually know that about 5 to 28% of the general population have experienced auditory hallucinations. And that number is a pretty wide range, and that's based on um, how we actually ask the question in research. So that there's a lot of variation in that regard, but between about 5% and 28% of the general population have experienced voices. So what we know, again, is that these are common experiences. And again, with psychotic spectrum disorders, the difference is that they tend to get stuck and be more distressing. So um, what I would say in this regard is that um, one of the theories of why we believe that auditory hallucinations are so distressing for people with psychotic spectrum disorders is that they have a harder time telling where the thoughts that they're having come from. So they might misattribute them to voices that are outside of themselves rather than thoughts that are coming from their own head, the way that we all experiencing them, experience them. And because they feel like they come from outside of them or are voices, so kind of, again, an external experience happening inside your brain, they're distressing. They're scarier for that reason for people, right? It would be scary to imagine that there's a voice inside of your head that you don't feel like you have control over that doesn't feel like your own. It feels unrelated to you. So that's one theory. There are a number of theories um, about why part auditory hallucinations happen. There isn't one definitive one. This is part of what CBTP looks at, though. So again, when we look up at targeting auditory hallucinations in CBTP, we're looking at the ones that don't match their beliefs about themselves and are distressing. So you may have clients, for example, who hear the voices of loved ones, and they are actually really calming or soothing types of voices. We are not trying to touch those unless they are bothersome to the client. Um, again, because we want to normalize the experience of like having those types of voices it makes total sense if it's not impacting your life. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, society might say that if you shared it with somebody else that you were having that experience, but that's, that's a different problem. That's a societal problem that we're not trying to kind of deal with just yet. So when you're thinking about auditory hallucinations, you're distressing or you're assessing whether they're distressing and if they impair functioning. So there's a really interesting um, research study from 2015 that compared the experience of voice hearers in three different places. So in California, in Ghana, and in India. And what that found is that Americans had 
significantly more negative relationships with their voices and that they found them more likely to be distressing. And in India and Ghana, they had actually mostly positive relationships to their voices and attributed their source to spirits or people they already knew. So they didn't feel as distressing or disturbing and they were less critical of them. So one thing we also know about voices is that they are culturally based. Now, as people in the U.S., we may not be able to make a huge change to that, but we do know that some of this is relative and that there is room for us changing people's relationships to their voices. So the way we go about this in CBTP um, is I'm going to, um, yeah, it is absolutely fascinating, Paul. Yeah, good comment. Um, I'd be happy to send that research study to you all if you want to. There's there's a number of things in that regard, too, that are happening, I think, around the world in terms of comparison. Um, and again, lots of theories as to why I certainly have my own, but it's certainly very curious to see the differences. So there's a handout for coping with voices. Again, you all may already have some, but that I um, have shared with you. Uh, so you'll have a copy of those. And this kind of runs through the strategies we commonly use in CBTP. So again, with anything we're doing in CBTP, we are always trying to get the strategies our client is already using first. So asking them what is already working for you so we can kind of assess what is, again, healthier strategies, what are less healthy strategies, and which ones do we want to focus on, and what are some that we might want to change, if any, and particularly if that client wants to change any of them. So the next thing, uh, and we're going to go through this, actually, let me turn to the next slide so you can see this in more detail, um, but is, this is actually what this handout looks like. So the way that we go through this is, first of all, activities that can distract you from your voices. So these are things that really give somebody's brain a break from thinking about um, or kind of like focusing on their voices. And again, I'm going to use the term voices interchangeably with inner auditory hallucinations. Keep in mind that people hear auditory hallucinations that are not voices, right? They hear the sounds of construction. They hear uh, the sound like a, an alarm going off, right? All kinds of different types of um, stimuli. So I'm going to just say voices for short, but you'll just to know that for yourself. So distraction is a really good option for some people. Um, again, using earplugs. We don't totally understand why this works, but there are a lot of clients for whom if they pop one earplug in an ear, um, it is helpful to them. I always give people caution to say start with one because especially if you're out in public, using two earplugs can be dangerous in the sense of um, if you are, I don't know, crossing the street and you don't hear oncoming traffic, et cetera. We want to just be cautious, but if you're at home by yourself, two is totally fine. Um, the next strategy is around acceptance. So this is about the part of not trying to ignore or push away your voices, but instead making friends with them to some extent. So um, for example, like finding ways to communicate directly with them. So sometimes I'll, I'll coach clients to say, okay, tell your client, um, you know, why don't you ask the voice if it can come back later? Or why don't you ask the voice what it feels like it's needing right now? Um, because maybe we can accommodate whatever the need is. Or like just finding a way to kind of get into touch with the voice. And again, rather than being judgmental, trying to suppress it, trying to, um, you know, be angry at it in an understandable way many people can be when these are distressing, just telling them like, now's not a good time. Let's, let's come back later. Next strategy here, reduce your stress. Obviously we mentioned this a little bit more. I'm not going to go into detail, but things that make a client stressed out are the things we want to avoid when possible. So, for example, um, I will often have clients do kind of a tracking log where they tell me what are the situations throughout the week where they notice that their voices get either 
more frequent, they come up in the first place, or they're more distressing in some way. So we can have an idea of what are the things that are happening in somebody's life that are actually worsening the voices for them. So, you know, again, with psychosis, overstimulation can be a problem. So one thing you might want to look at is, are they in situations that are overstimulating, like uh, going to the grocery store or a place that has bright lights or a lot of loud music, like a crowd? And how do we help them avoid that or, again, cope ahead? Think about ways that they can better manage that by limiting their time there, by, uh, you know, wearing uh, like a head. Um, I was going to say a headset, that's not right, uh, wearing uh, earphones so they can listen to music that can help distract or, you know, things that would kind of help them feel less overwhelmed overall. And then lastly, one of the strategies is talking. So a lot of people find that when they talk, their voices quiet down. So it might be that they're talking to somebody else. It could be they're calling a peer support hotline. It could be when they're in group. It could be um, reading out loud or singing along to music. You know, anything that can help them, again, kind of give themselves a break from those voices. Okay. All right, so let's, I'm gonna just look at the comment section here. So it looks like we have a comment from Carmen. How do we use these with clients that don't find the voices distressing or have insight on the voices but lead to legal involvement? Okay, let me see if I'm making, let me make sure I'm understanding your question, Carmen. So how do we use these strategies with clients who, oh, there's a follow up here. Okay, hang on, let me just get one at a time. So for clients that don't find voices distressing, we may not do anything with them. And that is okay. Again, like we're not trying to change anything that is working for a client or is not a problem. So in that case, you may not do anything. Um, the second question though, is that they don't have insight on the voices, but it leads them to legal involvement. So I might need an example for that one. What I'm kind of assuming you're saying though, is somebody, for example, who is you know, out in the street talking to themselves or yelling at their voices, um, communicating in a way that is maybe freaking out the, the public and somebody calls the police and, and then they end up getting incarcerated or is that kind of what I'm hearing? If that is correct, again, I'm making it kind of a guess here, then in that case, that is probably when we need to start doing some work around that. And it may be that we don't talk about the voices explicitly. We might just talk about what are some calm strategies that help you calm down when you're getting agitated or if you're having urges, I might say like urges rather than the voices telling you to do something, if you're having urges to hurt somebody else, right? Sometimes I don't talk about the like say voices or auditory hallucinations, hallucinations explicitly. Sometimes I will sort of talk around them in some kind of way that might be useful. So in that case, we might use other types of interventions. Okay, so I'm gonna just, uh, I see other, two other questions here. Let me come back to those once we get to our question section. Um, let me actually just check the time, 10.15. Let's go through this next section first and then we'll come to your questions in just a moment, everyone. I know you all have some great ones. Okay, so let's talk about acceptance a little bit more um, around voices. So for those of you who do mindfulness, either with your clients individually or in your clinic settings um, or wherever you're working in the field, there are some important adaptations that we can make specifically for psychosis. So again, for a long time, there was a belief that you shouldn't do mindfulness or any like quiet activities for people with psychosis. So I call BS on that. Um, and we know from research now that if we adapt those strategies effectively for people with psychosis, they actually can be really effective. So here are a few guidelines to think about. So for people who experience distressing voices, uh, suspicious thoughts, uh, distressing images, um, and who are also likely to experience them during a mindfulness activity, what we say is that uh, 10 minutes 
of practice as a time limit is really a good guideline. So there's a traditional 40 minute limit for the average person. That's much too long to recommend if somebody with psychosis. If somebody with psychosis have been doing this for a while and they know their own limits, they can do whatever they want that's helpful. But if I'm recommending something at first, I actually tend to start even lower. I might say like, let's do three minutes together. Or I might say, let's do one minute together, depending on what I think they can tolerate. And if you're in the room with somebody or, you know, in this case with during quarantine on video with somebody, maybe part of the work might be just seeing how they're reacting, right? You can often tell if somebody's getting agitated. And sometimes I'll stop halfway through to be like, how is this going so far? So you can check in. Um, the other piece that's important is that doing guided meditations. So not just let's start the timer, quiet sit for three minutes and then end. Those ones that have guidance are actually more effective where you're walking somebody through the steps or what you might want them to pay attention to rather than long silence. So the recommendation is that you give that guidance every 30 to 60 seconds. Again, it could be more or less depending on who you're working with. And that prevents them from getting lost in a struggle with critical voices or suspicious ruminations. And that guidance should ex refer explicitly to psychotic symptoms. Um, and to do so in a normalizing way where they're given no special status over other sensations that come and go. So like, for example, if you're doing a guided meditation with somebody, you might say, oh, you notice that your thoughts are coming going through your mind, or you might notice yourself distracted by thoughts, traditional things you might say in a mindfulness meditation. In this case, you're going to be saying things like, and noticing any voices or suspicious thoughts that are creeping in, right? You just are adding that to the language or, that you're using around mindfulness. So you might notice yourself getting distracted by a voice. Try to gently bring your attention back to that voice or communicate with it that you need to take a little break from right now and you'll come back to it later, right? So there might be ways to, again, just normalize and integrate that into your process. This is also a great strategy for dealing with any part that is distressing for people with psychosis. So that could be auditory hallucinations that we were just talking about. It could be suspicious thoughts. It could be just when somebody is getting agitated or overwhelmed. Um, you use it as you find is helpful. Okay, so let me give you all a chance to ask questions. Um, Jean, can I have you go through maybe the last couple of questions that have come up? I'm just gonna take a sip of water while you do that. Yeah, so um, Stephanie had a question about a client with schizoaffective disorder bipolar type who presents with tangential, disorganized, and preoccupied thoughts with rapid slash pressured speech. What interventions would work better than others? Um, great question. Um, so in terms of what we've talked about so far, let's go back for a second and look together. So in terms of our general coping skills, it depends. I actually think realistically any of these could be helpful to somebody, um, but particularly people who are moving, like I'm thinking of sort of like a hypomanic type presentation, like kind of what you're referring to of like rapid or pressured speech. I try to find ways to slow people down a little bit, um, and that might be through slowing myself down. It might be doing some mindfulness or some kind of self-compassion work. It might be around maybe having them do a little bit of distracting work in that moment. Um, it just depends. There are some clients also for whom that like um, intensity or like moving quickly or disorganized kind of thoughts is just going to happen no matter what type of thing we try to do to slow them down. And part of it's on acceptance and maybe naming for them. Like I'm just noticing you seem like you're a little bit more all over the place than usual. 
What can we do to kind of make you feel like everything is a little more clear to you? Um, so we try to look inquire gently to figure out what is useful for the person sitting in front of us based on what we're seeing happen at that moment. So I think the unfortunate answer here is it really depends on the person. And I also tell people experiment. Right. So you could try the first thing on this list. It doesn't work. You go to the next thing. Right. That's part of the reason we have such a wide number of skill opportunities for clients is because sometimes a few of them are just not going to work in that moment for whatever reason. And we want to just go on to the next one and keep trying. The next question is, how do we encourage for our clients to be more open to talking about their voices and or accepting their voices? Yeah, great question. So there are a lot of ways. I mean, I know I mentioned group before. If you have access to groups, though, that to me, again, has been one of the most powerful ways that I can get clients to be more open or accepting about their symptoms is by having other people who are talking about them or modeling that conversation. So if you don't have groups available, again, it could be community groups, like we talked about the Hearing Voices Network yesterday. Um, it could be finding, um, like at my clinic, one of the things we sometimes do kind of informally is we find clients who have, you know, common symptom presentation or life circumstances in common. And rather than seeing them individually, we might have like a little tiny group, right, where I meet with two or three of them at a time to give them the opportunity to get to know one another, again, with their consent and all of that involved. But I think really, um, again, like TED Talks, there's a number of great TED Talks um, where people who have gone on to achieve really great things, talk about their experience of hearing voices, experiencing schizophrenia, um, having suspicious thoughts, et cetera. So I think being able to model having other people who talk about them tends to be one of the most common ways I've found movement for clients in that regard. Yeah, you just had some comments about that saying that um, Ellen Sachs, Juliana brought up. And then um, Juliana had a question about if you could elaborate more on the coping skill of exposure. Yes, we're actually going to talk about that in one slide. Let's come back to that one in just a second because that's a really great question and I promise we'll spend more time there. And yes, Ellen Sachs is a great recommendation. She's got a great video online. Um, there's a number of other ones. Um, some of them are available in the link that I sent you all earlier from the University of Washington. The other thing you can look up is if you Google TED Talks, um, psychosis or TED Talks, hearing voices or TED Talks, bipolar disorder, there are a lot about people's firsthand experience dealing with mental health issues that are really helpful. The other option I'm thinking of too is there's a podcast. They've actually since changed their name and I'm not remembering off the top of my head, um, but it used to be called um, a, bi a bipolar, a schizophrenic, and a podcast. Um, and it was about, again, firsthand experience of people who've experienced um, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and kind of major mental health issues as well. I think that's all the questions for now. Okay, thanks so much, Jean. Okay, so let's talk for a few minutes about negative symptoms. So dealing with well, so let's review what those are just for a second to start. So negative symptoms are different for every client about whether they experience them or not overall. Um, but those might be things like lack of motivation, um, anhedonia, so lack of pleasure, interest in activities. It could be a flattened affect, so not seeing emotions expressed in an obvious way from their body language or facial expression. Could be a flat tone of voice. Um, it could be, oh, I'm, I'm not thinking of other examples right now, but you guys kind of get the idea of these types of symptoms that to me are often untouched by medication and that clients tend to deal with that really make 
social interaction challenging. And one thing I want to say before we move on, when we talk more in detail about this, is that for a long time, um, research in, in the world of mental health told us because people had these negative symptoms, people with psychosis, uh, they said, um, you know, people with psychosis don't experience the same range of emotions as other people. And again, I call BS on this. Uh, and we've learned now from research and from practice that it is not true. So what we know now is that people with psychosis experience the same range of emotions as all of the rest of us. They actually tend to have more negative emotions in general. Um, so they tend to get more emotionally dysregulated than the average person does. And, and part of that may be simply because of the symptoms they're experiencing. Um, but we also know that it just may not be as visible on their face or through their body language or expression. So I think, you know, when you see a client sitting in front of you who may look really flat or very unaffected, I would inquire more curiously with them if you're not already to understand what's happening for them, because just because you're not seeing it doesn't mean it's not happening for them. It just may be that you need to teach them ways to verbalize their experience, which can again help with those social interactions. Okay. So with negative symptoms, another strategy for dealing with them um, is around specifically behavioral activation and exposure, exposure strategies. So essentially behaviorism 101. So part of what we're trying to figure out is what is the problem and how can we deal with it? So let me give you an example. So if I have a client who has low motivation and anhedonia due to their negative symptoms, I might start with an activity like a goal for them of going to a group meetup, for example. And again, when we talk about goal behaviors, this has to also be something your client is on board for, because if they are not interested, you can't force them to do any of these things, right? Um, so again, a big part of exposure is about consent, right? Like find what the problem is and find what your client is willing to do to deal with it. So for those of you who are at all exper experienced with exposure, we come up with this thing called an exposure hierarchy. <clears throat> For something like social anxiety, for example, I might have a list of zero intensity at the bottom and then 100 intensity at the top. So what we might see is that down towards um, and then we rank, you know, like by tens between that. So 0, 10, 20, 30, up until 100. And at the top of that list, that client might say, OK, this is the thing that scares me the most to do. And that might be like making a mistake in public right, or having to public, do public speaking, or something that, like, they're like, that would freak me out, you know, to the moon and back, I would never do that, and down at the bottom might be things like um, making small talk with a stranger, or sending food back at a uh, restaurant, or things that are a little bit less intense, and I often will have clients create a list like this, again, of things that they'd like to see themselves doing, um, but they find they're too scared to do because of their anxiety, because of their negative symptoms, whatever it is, and then we target those. So the first thing we do is we identify safety behaviors. And safety behaviors are things that um, we do to try to make ourselves feel more comfortable. So I'll give you an example. Um, if I'm in a situation that makes me feel nervous, one of the things that I might do is like clasp my hands together, right? So like make me feel a little bit more safe. Or I might take like a bunch of sips of water. Or I might keep a prescription of like Ativan in my, in my bag or something like that, right? Things that I do that make my anxiety feel lower and they're they're comfort seeking behaviors and they make total sense to engage in like all of us do them but in the case of doing exposure they actually block our ability to learn that we can tolerate things without them 
So part of the work that you might be doing with a client, um, and this deserves a whole other lecture at some point, but is to say, okay, what are the things that are getting in the way of you or that feel like they're helping you in that moment, but might actually be getting in the way of you, for example, going to that group meetup we were talking about earlier. So using that same example we talked about before, one of the things we might do is we would problem solve in advance around what are going to be the barriers to you actually going to that meeting and getting there, right? So is it going to be your thoughts are going to get in the way, like I don't want to, excuses, whatever comes up. Is it that you may not have enough money for transportation? So what do we need to do to make sure that we can ensure you have the ability to get to and from the group? Um, whatever we need to do. And then similar to what we talked about before, I would have a client rate their motivation level before, during, and after the event. So beforehand, again, we call it a, a subjective units of distress measure. Again, don't worry about this language. It's just called a SUDS thing scale. And I would say, okay, on a scale of zero to 100, how are you feeling before in terms of your anxiety or motivation level? How are you feeling afterwards? So having them rank after they did it. And then in the debrief afterward, I'm asking them, how did, when was it kind of the worst or the most intense throughout that? Um, so for example, kind of the peak period. And I help them get that information because the more somebody does these like, behavioral experiments, the more likely those numbers are to get lower and lower. So they become, um, these events become more tolerable and their motivation actually tends to rise over time. So that's part of what we're looking for. And one of the things about exposure in dealing with negative symptoms or social anxiety or, or any of the things somebody might be dealing with where avoidance is a big part of the kind of block for people with psychosis is that we want the new learning to occur. And what I mean by that is the part where we do a debrief every time afterward, whether it's their homework they're doing on their own or in session when we do it together, to be able to say, what, did, what was different than you expected? So for example, um, when I'm talking to somebody, I might say, like they might say to me, you know, people were nicer than I expected, or it was a little bit less scary than I thought, or the first three times I did it, it was super hard, but by the third time it got a little bit easier. And again, this is the part about exposure that produces those long lasting effects that we're looking for um, that give us that new learning essentially. So unlearning the old belief of I can't do it and moving to a new belief of like, it's easier than I thought it was, or I can at least tolerate my anxiety to be able to do it, or um, my motivation was higher and I actually liked doing it more than I expected, that kind of new learning kind of examples that can happen. So that's what exposure looks like in the context of negative symptoms. Um, when I think about a group setting, for those of you who might be thinking about running a group with CBTP, I might have clients in group, for example, play a game like Pictionary, something that we can do together on the board. And I have them rate their motivation in the same way. So before, uh, when we start group, I have them go around the room and each have them say out loud, here's my motivation level right now. So they might say, I don't know, 10, 20, 30, right? The numbers tend to be pretty low in general. And then afterward, we do the activity together. Um, they're all a little bit nervous about doing it. Some people decide they don't want to and they'll just watch and that's okay. Um, and then afterward, we do the same thing out loud where people go around the room and share their motivation level afterward, how they're feeling after having done the intervention. And more often than not, we see those numbers rise. And it's a really cool experiment to see because I have written down on my paper what, I, what people's numbers are so we remember what before and after looks like. So we can reflect on that in those, as a group and say, what changed and why do you think it changed? Why do you think this was more fun than you expected? 
What did you like about it? Would you ever do it again? Right, things like that. Um, and we try to make that activity as painless as possible. Okay. All right. So we'll uh, have the opportunity to ask more questions about this if needed. So here's, I think, before we move on to family work, here's the thing that I think is really essential to all of this that some people forget is that with any type of CBT, and definitely including CBT for psychosis, we really want to emphasize clients doing homework between sessions. It's really important. And part of our job may be, you know, we mentioned the structure of a session last time where we talked about the first part is a check-in around how homework went, is that if somebody doesn't do it, we're not about shaming people. Our job is then to problem solve. What's going to make it more likely that you can do the homework and get really creative in those suggestions? So the reason why homework is so important is that um, in research around schizophrenia, for people who are doing CBTP, people who actually completed the homework assignments had an improvement of at least 60% more than those who didn't do homework, which is obviously huge, right? Um, in some ways, that's the difference between even wanting to do the treatment in the first place and not doing it at all is a 60% improvement to me. So that's something you want to do. And in particular, you want to make those homework assignments realistic and achievable. You want to set this person up for success. You want to have them feel like they can achieve something. So kind of that sense of mastery we were talking about with the ABC please skill. We want to give people the opportunity to feel that way. Um, in this case, we might want to involve loved ones or family members who can help them brainstorm around how to do these assignments or how to encourage them to. Um, and lastly, again, when we're thinking about the behavioral part of CBT, it's really important to have clients reinforce themselves for doing their homework. Um, and again, some form of positive reinforcement, not just punishing themselves when they don't do it, when they're critical on themselves, for example. And I will have them do something, we choose what's reinforcing. So sometimes reinforcement looks like praise from me. Not everyone likes that though. So you always have to ask your client, like what feels like something that's gonna make you wanna do it again. Sometimes it's, um, you know, buying themselves a chocolate bar afterward that they can eat or making themselves a special treat or patting themselves on the back and giving themselves that praise. Figuring out what works though for a client. Um, I will say, so I work um, pretty much exclusively with adults these days. And you would be surprised by how many of them like having a chart where they get to check off or put a gold star next to something. That is not just for kids. Um, I have found I love it myself too, but you know, some of these strategies don't change a lot based on somebody's age. So don't be afraid to suggest things that seem you know, uh, silly in some way because people tend to respond to them really well. Okay. So let's talk about our last section before we, I give you the opportunity to ask more questions. All right, so you all had the question earlier yesterday about how do we integrate somebody's support system? And this is such an important question. I love that you all brought it up. So I'm gonna speak to this a little bit more. So one of the things I can say first is I love the University of Washington Psychosis Reach program. Um, somebody mentioned, I think, a program that may have been similar that presented at NAMI earlier this year. Um, I don't know if it was the same program, but a similar setup, which is about how do we um, integrate clients, loved ones, whatever that looks like for them, into their CBTP treatment um, because it makes their treatment more effective overall to have that kind of community support. 
And again, you all know this, it's worth repeating though, that the support system can look however it needs to for the client you're working with. Obviously, not all people have um, a blood family in their lives or those aren't the people who are most supportive to them. So part of our work may be about building that chosen family support network because if they don't already have people in their life, part of our work is around, okay, so how do we work either with your social anxiety or potential social isolation to build people in your life who are going to be there for you? Um, the people that you can depend on, the people that you share, for example, like a wrap plan with, um, who are your emergency contacts, the people who are going to be there for you when, when things get real, and also the people that you're going to be there for when they have things they're going through too, right? It goes both ways. So that's a whole other kind of section that we do sometimes in CBTP, which is how to make friends. You know, that's a really essential skill that people miss because especially if you start developing your psychosis in your adolescence or early 20s, that's one of the critical times we develop our support system. So people may be missing some of those skills because they have to focus on their own stability and recovery at that time. So when we talk about integrating loved ones, um, one of the best ways that clients um, can learn these new behaviors or integrate their new skills, such as challenging their thoughts, using their skills, is to teach these same skills or interventions to their loved ones. That way their loved ones can help them use those. So again, we don't want to make a loved one the therapist because that creates kind of a gross dynamic um, between them overall, right? Where maybe the loved one feels or the person with psychosis feels like their loved one is trying to tell them what to do or taking on too much of that role. We want them to just be their family member still. Again, family member in the sense of whatever their support system looks like. Um, so what we're doing instead is giving them the opportunity to learn, how do I validate my loved one's emotions? So again, I mentioned this yesterday, but it's worth repeating, which is we can teach loved ones that you may not need to validate in a way that says your experience is real, right? So the idea, if a client, for example, thinks there's a chip implanted in their brain, um, and we know that's not true, we don't wanna um, either invalidate their experience by saying, no, that's not happening, but we also don't wanna necessarily say, yes, that is happening, that must be so stressful. So the, the middle ground with validation with family members is teaching somebody to say, that must be so stressful for you. Um, or that must be really difficult to keep your mind on anything else when you're worried about that all the time. So we're validating more about their emotional experience rather than their thought process. And that's really critical, right? Because one thing we know about validation is that validation helps to reduce our emotional intensity, either when we self-validate, so we validate ourselves, or when we validate somebody else. It's also a really important way that we build relationships and we strengthen them. So that's something that family members can do as kind of the first step. We also can have them work on normalizing their loved one's experience. So having them talk to their, talk about their psychosis non-judgmentally. And again, a lot of the way that we teach family members to do this, um, if you don't have a family support group, for example, like a lot of clinics would, um, is we do lead that by example. So showing them, okay, here's the questions that I might ask your loved one. So tell me about how the voices have been recently. What have they been saying? How hard have they been on you? Um, what are, you know, how have you been feeling about um, the FBI recently, right? Like we're just trying to elicit a little more information and asking it again, this curious, non-judgmental way that doesn't make assumptions about their experience, about what's supposed to be normal, quote unquote, and not normal. 
We also are working on having those family members, as I mentioned before, remind them to use their strategies or do homework. That is a really important part. Um, again, we don't want to encourage our family members to become their therapists, but we do want them to maybe remind them, right? Because people, a lot of our clients forget or they don't have access to the things that would make it easier for them. And so being able to integrate loved ones who can kind of remind them or help them support them in some way to do their homework or, you know, use those strategies in the moment can be really useful. Because particularly if you you know, you've probably had this experience yourself. When you get really emotionally overwhelmed, it's hard to remember, oh, I should do that new skill I just learned in therapy this week, right? You're most likely going to go back to your old strategies um, that you were doing before, like isolating yourself or using substances or, or trying to avoid or whatever it is. So in this case, our loved ones can kind of remind our clients of like, hey, remember that new thing that you learned in therapy this week? Let's try doing that together. Like, let's do some deep breathing right now, or let's do some mindfulness, or let's try to challenge the thought or whatever it looks like. And then lastly, again, we talked about it with homework, how important reinforcement is. So loved ones can also reinforce them when they see them using a skill or when they see them trying to do something differently. And even if they're not succeeding, but they're working on it, there's, you know, they can praise them. They can provide them with treats. They can, you know, again, do that, um, the schedule we were talking about before with checking things off or putting stars on there. You know, they can encourage them with praise, all kinds of ways that people can, as loved ones, really just reinforce how hard they're working and what they see happening. So this is the website I mentioned earlier, which is the University of Washington's um, uh, website that I really like um, through their program. So they have all kinds of resources as I mentioned before. So take note of that. I would definitely recommend that as a resource for next steps. But I wanna to move to your questions now um, because I saw a lot of them come up in the chat. So maybe Jean, I could have you take over if you don't mind. Yeah. So from earlier, mm -hmm. they were just saying that the podcast is now called Not Crazy, just so you know. Okay, um, perfect. And then Marlon has a question about what should you do if the client is expressing increased distress after engaging in multiple exposure exercises. Okay, it depends. So um, there are different ways I might address it, depending on what the, the problem is that's happening. So sometimes it's that we've started too high on that hierarchy. So we have started with an activity that feels too stressful to start. So there are times where I might say, let's move to something that's a little bit less scary and go from there. So sometimes less scary for people looks like something as kind of more basic as let's just imagine you going to this group. Like what would it like, where would you be? What would it look like? How would you feel? Um, I might have them watch a video of somebody attending a group, right? We kind of are trying to like work them up again by building that sense of confidence and mastery. So that's one strategy we might use. Um, sometimes it also takes a bunch of exposures for somebody to feel better. So part of what we might do is psychoeducation by being like, you're probably going to feel worse before you get better. And I also know you can get through this. So be patient, give it time. Um, lastly, one thing I might do is if I'm not already, I do it in session with clients. So if I'm out in the community with them, or if I'm in my office, I might say, let's go downstairs and let's go talk to, uh, I'm thinking about a social anxiety kind of exposure, right? Let's let's go talk to somebody who we don't know downstairs and see how it goes. Um, you know, again, getting somebody's consent and permission to try that, but I might do it with them so I can see how it goes. And I can also see, am I noticing them engaging in safety behaviors? Am I no like, what am I noticing happening? And also being in the moment with them where right afterward I can share or like kind of debrief with them to see what they noticed happen. And they can tell me in that moment, 
oh, I really noticed my voices got a lot louder then. So we might say, okay, what do we need to do around the voices to kind of help manage some of this? So we might have the opportunity in that moment when they're really aware of what's getting in the way to have a debrief conversation to kind of problem solve. Great. Um, and then we have from Lisa, kind of a comment, but I think there's an opportunity for feedback. Mm -hmm. Some don't want to do homework because they can't see how it can help at the time, especially mm -hmm. if people believe their problem is a camera in their head or a group of people are harassing them. Yeah, great, great comment here. Um, yes, so I think to answer your question, the first part of it about they don't know how homework will help is that part about doing it with them. Um, so for example, if you're in a group setting with a client or an individual setting is trying to do whatever intervention it is, whether it's exposure or, um, you know, practicing a new skill or whatever, do it with them. Um, so that they have the opportunity to see how it actually works. And I think that's really important when you're introducing any new skill is doing it with somebody so that they can have the opportunity to figure out how they'd applied it to their life. How does it actually feel, et cetera. Um, and if the problem, so the problem, if they believe it's camera in their head or group people are harassing them. Yeah, I mean, so then you might get uh, kind of shift gears and say, okay, if it feels like the problem can't be solved by, um, you know, challenging the thoughts or weighing the pros and cons, like we talked about yesterday, then maybe the intervention instead is how do we accept this might be the reality and how do we cope ahead for your stress that might come up when you're at home uh, or when you walk by a group of people and you notice that they might be, or you feel like they're harassing you. If somebody's actually harassing you, that's obviously a different intervention, but if it's a suspicious thought that people are out to get them, for example, how do we cope with that feeling like reality? So again, if there isn't insight or awareness around that, then we maybe work more on acceptance and coping ahead in a situation like that. Yeah, thank you. Um, and then Stephanie asked if you have a group protocol or workbook that you used for the peer support or CBT for psychosis group you outlined yesterday. Yeah, so the website that I sent from the University of Washington will um, has a really nice list of uh, books that are available and one of those is a CBTP group workbook that's on there that I find that's really useful. Um, I've also compiled my own curriculum. Um, if you're interested, just send me an email and I'm happy to share uh, the parts of you uh, with you that would be helpful. Um, so, and that's just based on, because there are a number of different workbooks, it's kind of an amalgamation of those. So yeah, those, those are both options. Great. And Violetta asks, what's your feedback to working with clients who have religious delusions or ideas of reference, like God told me to? Yeah, um, okay, this is a great question. Um, there are uh, different approaches. So um, it depends on what the, the end of that sentence might be, for example. So if it's something that feels like it's in line with their cultural and religious values and it's not a problem, I might not do anything about it, right? I may, there may not be a need for intervention. However, if there is a need, right, like it's a problem behavior or there's an issue that's coming up for them or there's some reason we need to address it, for example, then I might um, work on challenging a little bit. And let me be honest, it's hard to challenge beliefs that are about something about like a religious figure, like God, for example, because there are so many different interpretations of God's behaviors, the way that, uh, you know, he or she might interact with us as humans. I mean, there's so many different things that make it challenging in this regard. So I might explore with them um, around what their beliefs are about um, how God is interacting with them 
Um, is it, again, culturally normative? Is it something that is, um, an, again, like, is it an issue for them in some way? And work on that kind of piece with them. And also giving them the ability to say, do you feel like you need to act on it if God tells you? Like, does it feel like you have to in that situation? Or do you feel like you have a choice? And if you do feel like you have a choice, how do we work on strategies that help you prevent from acting on the urge? So for example, if it's something like God told me to hurt somebody else, right? Or something that would be a problem or use drugs or whatever, then we might work on what are things you can do, like an urge surfing intervention or um, strategies that can help somebody around distress tolerance to avoid acting on that particular behavior in that case. And Eve has a comment for that question that is really great too, that mm -hmm. she's heard someone speak about shifting focus to value and saying something like, it's important for you to feel safe or protect people or do as God tells you and figure out why that is so important, trying to understand the underlying value. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great comment, Eve. I think that's a nice um, use of act in that situation. Um, sort of giving yourself some ability to, to focus on what's important to that client and figure out then how does your value drive your behavior ultimately in that situation? And how can we shift that if it's needed? And if not, how do we focus on what's important to you in terms of your spirituality? How can you express your spirituality or your religion in a different way that feels healthier for you and feels more in line with what you want potentially? And then we have a tough question. What interventions okay. do you recommend for clients who are catatonic and mute? Oh, that's a, yeah, that's a challenge. Um, <laughs> yeah, I have, you know, certainly had clients in that situation. It depends, right? I think a lot of times when I think about true catatonia, where somebody is not functional, essentially, because of such slowed down um, motivation, ability to move, to interact, et cetera. Sometimes that's where somebody needs to be hospitalized or be at a higher level of care, unfortunately. So that's the, the kind of extreme version. But for people who are instead like not talking very much, but they're still taking care of their basic needs, they're still eating, they're still doing what they need to do. It's just that they're barely interacting with people. Um, my sessions are significantly shorter, um, right, in general, because we do focus on a lot of talk therapy in general. But my work might be about behaviors, right? So then I focus instead on the things that I might be able to engage somebody to do rather than needing to talk about them. So my work, for example, might be about, okay, let's go downstairs and let's take a walk outside. And we may not talk very much if that person doesn't feel up for it. And I might just spend most of that session sharing to be like, well, you know, I don't know a lot about what's going on for you, but, you know, here are some of the things that I find are helpful for somebody. I might introduce a, like a skill or two, like around breathing, something that doesn't involve like vocalizing things. Um, and I might just use it as an opportunity to like build a relationship with them. Um, I'm not, uh, I'm more introverted. You may not be able to tell because I'm giving a presentation and talking a lot, but it's also okay to have blanks uh, spaces, right? Where you're just talking, you're just walking with somebody and you're working on building that relationship simply by like moving together and doing what you need to do in that moment. So I think being comfortable with that reality that you may be in a session with somebody where it doesn't feel like you're getting any kind of work done, but you're working instead on building the relationship and helping them feel more comfortable in the hopes that they will be able to talk a little bit more and you might be able to understand better why they're not talking. I think the other thing is like, um, this is a little bit outside the realm of CBTP, but what about doing art right with them, having them express themselves in a way that isn't about vocalizing or verbalizing how they're feeling, but instead having them express themselves in a different way. So I think those are the moments where you get really creative with somebody. 
Part of what you would be doing in a situation like this would be um, trying to figure out in your assessment phase of treatment um, what actually is the issue, right? So I always do a trauma assessment in a first session with somebody. So what you're looking for are what are potential traumatic experiences they've had? Um, are there, you know, is there a history of childhood trauma or abuse? Is there a history of traumatic invalidation or neglect? Um, what are the types of experiences somebody has had prior to coming to the office with you? We also talked about yesterday the idea of understanding what treatment has looked like for a client before they get to you. Um, there are plenty of traumatic experiences clients have through hospitalizations or institutionalizations and being incarcerated or even with therapists um, that can lead to some of that trauma. So the first step is just understanding their history. Um, and in some ways, the root of where something came from, whether it's trauma or whether it's something somebody has just developed, is less important um, in terms of how you actually work with it. It's helpful for somebody to understand it that way. I think it can be very validating for somebody to understand, you know, that this is based in, you know, a terrible experience that you've had. It's not like just you, right? Not that it ever is just you, um, but just to be able to kind of name that. And um, in terms of the interventions, so the same way that you would challenge thoughts through like cognitive processing therapy, for example, CPT, we do in CBTP as well. So I think that part matters less in terms of the actual interventions we use. That being said, the, the next step to me, once you have somebody working with them through CBTP or even a different treatment for psychosis where you're getting them stable enough, and stable enough looks different for everyone, of course, that is when we can actually use more PTSD-specific interventions. So prolonged exposure therapy for PTSD as well as cognitive processing therapy or CPT are both shown um, through research now to say that they are effective and safe for people with psychotic spectrum um, disorders. So that might be the part that does actually look different is the other types of interventions that we provide for somebody once they get some more stability. And I think this is something we haven't done a lot in the mental health field, again, because we sort of thought anyone who hears voices or anyone who has psychosis will be triggered by doing PTSD treatment, when the reality is that's not really true. Um, we do have the ability to help somebody treat the underlying PTSD or the comorbid PTSD they might be experiencing as well. Great. And then Marlon asked another question earlier about, are there any psychotic spectrum disorders where CBT for psychosis is contraindicated? Great question. Um, not that I know of. I would have to look back at the research to make sure there weren't any rule outs. Um, my guess is there might be, for example, somebody with um, a substance use, for example, that is so impairing that they are not able to be like physically stable, that might be contraindicated where you're trying to work on safety or stability in that case. Again, any case where safety is the priority, we need to focus on that first. But in general, there aren't really a lot of rollouts with CPTP because people have so many comorbid conditions when they're experiencing psychosis um, that it would uh, do clients a disservice to say we have to treat this thing before we can do CBTP with you in general. And then Pam said yesterday you mentioned schizophrenia and PTSD or social anxiety. Could you elaborate more? Uh, yeah, so maybe if you could, Pam, give me maybe a little bit more specific questions. So I know I talked about yesterday the idea that um, 
the overlap between these diagnoses is very, very common with schizophrenia. So, you know, about 40% of people with schizophrenia are diagnosed with PTSD and about 30% with social anxiety. Um, so uh, just in general, um, one of the, the sort of hallmark strategies for intervening with PTSD and social anxiety are exposure-based um, interventions. So when we were talking about negative symptoms and we we're talking about that exposure hierarchy and other interventions you could use, that to me is usually the best place to start when you're treating social anxiety or PTSD with somebody who's experiencing a psychotic spectrum disorder as well. If you have a more specific question, feel free to, to add that in there as well, Pam. Wonderful. Okay, we've got some really great examples here. I'm excited to hear about how that goes for you all. Um, Acceptance when it comes to auditory hallucinations. Yeah, I, I think for those of you who are interested in learning more about that, um, ACT for psychosis um, is what has a lot of that uh, application of how to provide it in a group format as well as individually. You know, of course, in ACT, there's a lot of focus on mindfulness, um, acceptance-based work in general. Um, that can be really helpful for a lot of clients where it's not about changing the way you think about um, your actual voices or your psychotic experience. It's just about more about accepting what they are and changing your relationship to them that is really useful to a lot of people overall. Um, so that's something I would kind of recommend looking into. There's also a lot of emerging information about using DBT skills, which are mindfulness heavy and focus on that balance between acceptance and change. Um, so that's another area to look into as well. So a lot more that I could say on this topic. I just want to say I'm really grateful to have had the opportunity to work with you all a little bit um, for taking, you know, two days of your time with me. I'm so appreciative. And if you have follow-up questions, you've got my email now, so feel free to answer, or, you know, ask me questions as you need to keep looking at CBT for psychosis. Again, these trainings are short and sweet, and so the more that we can have you practice this, get this into your kind of clinical work, your work with clients right away, the more likely they are to stick and become part of your clinical practice. So I want to just really encourage you to start using those. Thank you, everyone. Um, and I'll miss you. I'm sad to not spend another day with you all. So <laughs> thanks for spending your, your last two days with me.